This is Jocko Podcast number 150 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And who are the young men we are asking to go into action against such solid odds? You've met them. You know. They are the best we have. But they are not McNamara's sons or Bundy's. I doubt they are yours. And they know. They know they are at the end of the pipeline. That no one cares. They know. And that right there is an anonymous quote from a general in Vietnam to correspondent, uh, war correspondent named Arthur Haley, who is actually himself a decorated tank commander in World War II, who enlisted in the army. And there's a key word I said there, you know, a volunteer who voluntarily enlisted in the army in World War II. And in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War, you hear a lot about the draftees in Vietnam. And in fact, 25% of the forces that fought in Vietnam were draftees. And draftees accounted for 30% of the deaths in Vietnam. Now, on this podcast, we've heard from a bunch of those volunteers, a bunch of those career soldiers, Marines that fought in Vietnam, but tonight we're honored to have someone on the podcast that was not necessarily a a volunteer, that was not necessarily looking to be in the military for a career, but who nonetheless stepped up and did his job for our country. And once he served his time, he came home and lived his life, and he had a son. And his son has also joined us on the podcast, and his son took a different route. He was guided by his dad, but he was guided not to war, but to the water. So we have tonight Dave Hall, Vietnam veteran, tanker who's also the father of Josh Hall, who's a surfer, a craftsman, a surfboard shaper, and an entrepreneur. And I think we're looking forward to this, at least I am. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks for coming on. Josh, Dave, awesome to have you. It's an honor. Thanks for coming out here from Hawaii. (laughs) I I, I know, you know, most people don't want to leave Hawaii when they're there. But I'm glad we were able to drag you out here. No, it was a burden on me, but <laughs> no, I love to see my son. Awesome. Awesome, Josh. Thanks for yeah. coming on. Thank you, Josh. I'm stoked. Thank I you. know we've been seeing each other in the water for a while and at contests and whatnot, so it's yeah. good we uh, linked up and, and have this opportunity to come on yeah, and talk about, talk about some of my favorite things, war and surfing. <laughs> 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 so... Dave, we got to start with you, and you know we always kind of try and take it back to the beginning, and just kind of what your background was, and 
you know, where you came from. I know what you were born in. Uh, born in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And, and what'd your dad do? My dad was a. Uh, my dad did many things. You know, World War Two. He's a, a pilot, and B seventeen over in uh, England. And uh, so that's one that just slipped under the radar. Yeah, <laughs> your dad was a B seventeen pilot in World yeah. War Two. Yeah, dang. Yeah, B twenty fours and. Uh, he always wanted to be a fighter pilot, and he tried to go to uh, the Pacific, but it, I, that never happened. Mm. I know. So, anyways, married my mom, um, and then uh, we ended up living in Boston for a while. I mean, we traveled around the country because he was still in the service, mm. in the Air Force. Uh, lived in Texas, and lived in Colorado, lived in. Was he was he a career uh, Army guy, Army Air Force guy? For yes, for a little while. Okay, yeah. I don't know exactly when he got out. When he did get out, um, he started flying for United Airlines. Okay, and I know in the fifties and stuff he went went to. I, I don't think he went to Korea. I I'm lost right mm-hmm. now. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he he uh, he did a, a multitude of things. He was a teacher, a lawyer, a farmer. Uh, he farmed in Nebraska. He, he was born in Nebraska. Had a, we had a big ranch back there, and uh, he taught school uh, in Nebraska. And then uh, we had been living in Santa Ana until I was nine years old. I went to visit uh, my grandfather in Nebraska, and then that summer, at the end of the summer, my folks ended up coming out with all the kids and the the whole house. So he, Decided not to fly for United Airlines anymore and become a farmer again. So, yeah, it was kind of different. So, anyways, that's, yeah. Like I said, I lived in a lot of different states and stuff because during the, because of the service. But uh, Nebraska was kind of like my favorite place, you know. From there. Now, you, so you, did you work on the farm? Oh, Obviously, yeah. Obviously, because every kid that yeah. grows up on a farm is like slave labor. Exactly. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, 10 hours in the field plowing, uh, you know, the we had a, a cow we had to milk every day you know we called her six o'clock six o'clock in the morning six o'clock at night <laughs> and uh, a few other cattle and we had pigs and i raised 300 chicken and you know and of course you know i had my brother and sisters and stuff were there too they they all helped out and this is when you're what like 10 11 12 i years was old? Uh, 11 yeah i went back there at 10 and i was back there for like four uh, three summers you know, so I was 12, I think, when we ended up moving back to uh, Connecticut. And then how long were you out there for? A year in Connecticut. And then I, then my dad, um, he bought a business here in San Diego. Oh, okay. And uh, haul-and-haul personnel. <laughs> and uh, so we moved back out here, and he found a place, and we lived out in Spring Valley. And uh, he worked downtown, had his own office down there, so... Yeah, it was kind of different. And so then you spent your, your high school years here? Here in San, in Diego. San Diego. Yeah, I started ninth grade in San Diego. Went to Mount McGill High School. And uh, then I graduated and went to, I was going to college for a while and then uh, got did drafted. You, did, you, did you start surfing in high school? Actually, when we lived in Santa Ana and stuff, I didn't surf. We we had mats. Uh-huh. You know, we had mats up there. Old my mom. school. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you know, I was young then, and we'd always go down to uh, my mom take me every day. You know, down me and the kids and and uh, to Laguna Beach. Okay. Uh, down there, China Cove down there, 
and uh, yeah, broke my eardrum down there. Ouch. As a matter of fact, yeah. But anyways, yeah. Uh, and then I started. I started surfing. You know, tenth grade, mm-hmm. you know, ninth grade and stuff. But uh, yeah, we uh, when we first came out here and stuff, I loved. It. I thought we were going to move to the beach. We stayed at the San Diego Motel right down there on. Uh, it's across from In and Out in PD by the yeah. freeway. Right. Okay. And we stayed there until my dad found a house <laughs> yeah. to live in. You know, so uh, you know, I go to the beach then, you know, walk to the beach. Oh yeah. yeah. It was fun. That's what everyone thinks. <clears throat> well, people that don't live in California think all of California is like Baywatch. No. That's the yeah. that's what all <laughs> yeah. don't realize that there's, you know, massive I mean, obviously, there's massive swaths of land, but agriculture is huge. You know, you'd go up the, you just drive by farm after farm after farm after farm. So much of California is farming, yeah. and but people think everything in California is just Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Can come close sometimes. But, but then, you, so you, but you went to high school here, <clears throat> and you, you did surf, but you you weren't able to get to the water that much. Mm, quite a bit, actually. Okay. Yeah, I had a. <laughs> I had a, uh, my dad bought me a 53 Chevy, 54 Chevy two-door and stuff, so I ripped out the back seat so I'd get my boards in there. And uh, then I got my sister's car. She had a uh, station wagon. It was a 57 Ford two-door deluxe, you know. It was, you know, the whole thing. That was a surf wagon. Oh, yeah. You know, so me and the boys, you know. So I was wrong. You actually got to the water a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. And you did you you wrestled you um... in high school? Yeah, a little bit of wrestling. Uh, I was mostly on the uh, I was on the swim team. I dove and I swam. And um, my fault, you know. Somebody said, "Can anybody do the butterfly?" And I go, "Yeah, I can." You know, and early, so you're the butterfly guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then. So during this time period, were you paying attention? I mean, obviously your dad was in the was you know out of the military, but you had that connection to the military. Were you paying attention in those years? Because now we're talking. This is like the mid '60s. Are you paying attention to what's happening no. in Vietnam? <laughs> or you're just you focused no, on no, just yeah, just life. You're right, you know, right. you know, as a kid, but um, not that I can really recall. Yeah, you know, it wasn't really on my radar. Yeah. Know. It, and then you graduate, and you figure you're going to go to college for a bit. Yeah, well, we went to Grossmont Junior College. What year did you graduate high school? Uh, 66. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so Vietnam was still relatively... Yeah, it wasn't... Yeah. yeah. I mean, they started... Well, the, we, Idr- the Battle of the Idrang Valley was in 1965, and that was kind of like the big first spike in activity. Well, not, I don't want to say that, but it was definitely a highlight. It right. started hitting the news more, right. and that was in 65, so you graduated in 66. Yeah. I mean, there was talk, you know, everything, yeah. draft, the draft and stuff like that, but it wasn't like, you know, like I said, it wasn't, I didn't really pay attention to it. <laughs> Yeah, just surfing. Yeah, yeah. Surfing can distract you from all kinds of the world's problems, (laughs) which is a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) So then, so then you roll to uh, Grossmont College. You're there. Yeah. Yeah. And now, are you are you starting to become more aware of the draft at this point? Mm, No, no, because I (laughs) I snow skied a lot, so you know there's a lot of activity, and I belong to the ski club there at Grossmont, and you know so we go to Squaw Valley Heavenly and 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 ski a lot. So no, I (laughs) still didn't really think about it. I didn't think about it until I saw my mom pull a envelope up, you know, and she said, "Hey, you got something from the government." 
And what was your reaction to that? I can't go to Mazelon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it was. So, so it hit you that it was that unexpected for you when you got that when you got your draft notice. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know any other guys that had been drafted? Oh yeah, uh, the class before me and stuff. No, no, I uh, Jim Tomlinson, uh, great guy. Um, he was 25th infantry over there and stuff. They came back with all the war stories. So yeah, I take that back. I was aware of it, mm-hmm. you know, because all these guys were coming back and talking about it. But I never thought, you know, uh, me. I didn't worry about going. So yeah. So then, when you got it, <clears throat> what was your reaction when you got it? I was going, well, I'm going to go. I guess. Yeah. You know. It was either that, you know, or run and hide. And I thought, well, you know, if we make it to Mazelon, that's not a bad place to be. <laughs> you know, if I could survive down there. So, and then I said, well, no, I got to do it. Yeah. yeah. It was a little bit scary, but, you know, I'm, I, I always look forward to things. You know, I mean, I didn't look forward to going over there, but I mean, it's kind of different. You know, why not try it? <laughs> So what was the shock to your system like, you know, this, this going from the surfing, skiing, and Mazatlan life <laughs> to checking into boot camp? Um, well, you had to go through the process of getting, you know, to go up to the draft board in L.A., so I did that and then came back and then had to go up a second time for something, and then that was when we ended up getting on a bus and going to Fort Ord. And it was like, whoa, you just lo- you're locked in. You know, you don't you no place to go. <laughs> and, and now, now this is '68, so now we're we're talking. I mean, it's things have inflamed in Vietnam, and it's. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of casualties happening, and you know, for from your perspective, you must have been thinking, hey, you might not have been thinking about it as much before, but all of a sudden, you're wearing a uniform, and there's people coming home. You know, people getting killed every day over in well, Vietnam. Well, I had at this friends, point. yeah. Yeah, I had friends that came home or didn't come home, you know, that that told me about it, you know, other friends and stuff. But I mean, it was like, <clears throat> of course, once you get in basic and stuff, they got they got you, you know. I mean, you, <laughs> they, <laughs> yes, pretty, they, they, they pretty much got you, and uh, you either go along with the program or they make you go along with the program, and you end up going along with the program. <laughs> so, did, did, did you see guys that were? you know that that showed up that realized what they got into and would act crazy or you know no yeah yeah you you had all all sorts of people one thing about the draft you had every walk of life i mean you have every walk of life in the military anyways mm-hmm. you know they come from all over but the draft picks them out of the bushes you know i mean it's like you know you got big guys small guys you got older guys now i i was lucky because i was a little bit older and most of the guys, like when I was in Vietnam, were a lot younger than I was. I mean, other than, the, I mean, the guys that were with me. And know? by older, you were how old? I was twenty one. <laughs> yeah, old man. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In yeah, some respects, sure. yeah, yeah. You know, it respects. always. Whenever I go down to Coronado and I see the the seals, the the seal, and and you know, I'll be with my wife. We'll go to Coronado. We'll see some seals <clears> on the beach or whatever. And you can't help. I mean, my wife can't help herself from saying they look so young. They look I like know. little kids. Yeah. And that's the same with me when I was nineteen. You know, that's where I, that's where I was. So yeah, when you're nineteen years old, when you're eighteen years old, and you're looking at someone that's twenty one, yeah, they're like yeah. the oldest person in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, all the other cadre and stuff were a lot older and stuff. You know, but um, and and did you did you have any choice in what your MOS was going to be? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we made it through ba- uh, basic training. Um, Sergeant Patterson was my ins- drill instructor. Great guy. And then towards the end, they came out and they had this chart, with everybody's name on it, 11, 11 Bravo, 11 Bravo, 11 Bravo, and they saw me and Bob Zikba uh, was 11 Echo. And we asked one of the sergeants as we were walking by, I go, what, what's 11 Echo? What is that? Because you know, we knew 11 Bravo was infantry. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, you're going to be a tanker. I go, cool. I'm going to drive trucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have farm background, tractor, mm-hmm. whatever, you know. And he goes, no, no. Because I figure a tanker truck. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> In my mind, <laughs> you know. I was going, oh, shoots. And um, they go, no, you want to. A tank. <laughs> well, I still didn't quite get it, you know. So, anyways, yeah. So, in that respect, I go, okay, fine. And only two of us out of like 210 guys or something had 11 Echo. A couple of guys went to um, the APC mm-hmm. schools, you know, I forget what they call it. And it was 11 Echo something a-, a or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Would, would, uh, like you talked about, the guys that are putting you through basic. These guys were guys coming back from Vietnam. Was the tone of basic training like, hey, you guys are going to Vietnam. You need to be ready? Yes. You had to, yeah, we knew we were, something was going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like towards the end of, uh, of uh, basic training and stuff, they sent us to see this film. And it was uh, John Wayne movie what was the name of um i don't know you're good at that <laughs> <laughs> i wish jimmy was here yeah um God, what are they john wayne movie you guys never saw it i'm sure i have he's in vietnam he's a general and oh um, i don't know <laughs> oh good guy <laughs> anyways but, i think but anyway. that's what they did they sent you they, to see they, they sent to see a movie it was you know we Got to go have a couple of beers and go see the movie, and then then back, and then after that we uh, uh, came home. You know, after basic training. So that that movie was their way of kind of like, letting you know what's going to kind of happen to you. Yeah. Why can't I think of that? Did they? Yeah. Was it? Did you feel like the training that you, they put you through? So. I mean, obviously, boot camp is boot camp, and you're going to get yelled at, and you're going to do push-ups. Mm-hmm. When you got done with boot camp, and they were putting you through, today, the Army, they go through the AIT. Like, like AIT. Yeah. So did you go through something like AIT? I did. I went through AIT in Fort Knox. That's where the, the tank school is. And uh, then they put me through uh, NCO school, which is because they need a lot of NCOs, I guess, you know. So, so did you get it, like, meritoriously advanced to become an NCO, or? It's hard, <laughs> it's hard to say, I guess, yeah. you know. It's just whatever your aptitude is to, to do yeah. things, you know, so. Was was that advanced <clears throat> school that they put you through, was that, was it good training? Were mm-hmm. you? Oh, excellent training, okay. yeah. 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 So you were pushed hard, they were, you know, teaching you to use all the weapon systems, teaching you how to react in firefights and all that stuff. Right. And okay. then, you know, just mentally, you know, prepare yourself for, for what's going on. I mean, radio operations, uh, you know, command and controls and, you know, things like that. So, I mean, it's things I didn't, had no idea what I was doing, but uh, 
yeah, it worked out pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, it's it's always interesting to hear the way they prepare guys for combat. Yeah, because we 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 went and became like E fours, uh, and then and then once you graduated, you're at E five, you know, so you're a sergeant right away. Really? Yeah, and then after you graduate from that school, um, I started training on tanks. I get different different guys. Lucky me, I got the National Guard guys from California on my tank, which was kind of, you know, they said, well, you're from California, you can train these guys. So I said, okay, well, I'll do it. Pretty good guys. (laughs) And then then you come home, and then they give you leave after you get done with all that. Yeah, we went through, um, what was it? Um, Some more advanced training and stuff. Anyways, I felt it, it... I fell asleep in class one day, you know, and, and we were getting, it's, it's getting towards like Christmas time and stuff. Everybody's going to get to go home. And this one lieutenant, I guess, because I, I just nodded off. I mean, we've been on this, this drill, boom, 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 you know. And so he went through one of his classes and, and I, I nodded off and the guy goes, well, sorry, you, you're not going to go home. Get out of my class. So I, I went back and I talked to my sergeant major. And then he went and talked to some colonel, and then they went, I guess it went all the way to battalion or something like that, and they said, no, he's going to go home. He finished the class, and so they let me back in the class, and I finished it up, and it was kind of like, oh, good, I get to go home for Christmas. <laughs> and was that Christmas your pre-deployment leave? Was it pre- um, or was that just um, No, like it, was a just a, it was a two-week, br- two-week break, and then I came home. In February or March, I know I was home for my birthday. It's kind of hard for me to remember. I, I'm not sure, but I know I left here like April 15th. I think it was. It was. I, and I was, that was to go to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. And what was the? Uh, I almost missed a flight too. That's all, it was great. <laughs> the PSA flight out of San Diego. Yeah. So they, they held the plane for me. Okay. Well, that wasn't that nice of them. <laughs> yeah. Were you? Uh, you came home. Was that what was the mood like when you were going over to Vietnam? And you're saying goodbye to your family, and you're saying goodbye to your mom, and 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 what? Yeah, that was that was. Uh, we had a pretty good party, you know, <laughs> one night, and uh, uh, my next door neighbor had this beautiful rose gardens and his whole garden and stuff. You know, there's guys sleeping out there. Went through a couple of kegs, and you know, so it turned out pretty good. And uh, so, yeah, there was a little bit of. M- Moments, you know, where you're kind of a little anxious and stuff, you know. And I talked to my mom, and and uh, she was an army nurse, you know, uh, so she kind of knew what was going on. I bet that had to be way harder on your mom than it was on you. Yeah, I didn't know that, you know, when it yeah. was happening, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. When I was young, and even when I was older, <laughs> I was always like, "Hey, you know, we're kind of it." indestructible and especially when you're young oh and sure you're like hey i'm gonna go over there we're gonna kick ass that's what's gonna happen and it can be a little uh but but for especially if your mom was an army nurse yeah and so she's seen all kinds of stuff yeah she took care of a lot of uh, wounded soldiers uh yeah so that had to be way harder for her and it's always i think always harder for she the was, families she didn't show it though you know she never uh, uh, she gave me a little book uh Sorry. It's all right. It's all right, man. You still have the book? I do, someplace. <laughs> all, all it was was a little saying that says, 
uh, out of Psalms and it says, uh, be part of the answer, not the problem. Yeah. And that was why I kept that with me. <laughs> well, that's, that's some, that's some unbelievable advice right there. I yeah. mean, that's great advice for any situation. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Let it out, man. <laughs> it's all good. So when you, <clears throat> so, so you fly the, the, um, the commercial plane over to Vietnam? I've, or was it a chartered plane? No, it was. It was, uh, it was a commercial. It was a. I don't even know what airlines it was. Yeah, but it was a commercial plane. And was there a bunch of other guys going to Vietnam yeah. on it? Oh, was yeah. it all Vietnam? All, all, all guys. Yeah, yeah. We flew from uh, Frisco or Travis or whatever it is up there, and um, flew to Japan. Landed in Osaka, Japan, and uh, the pilot was really nice. He went around Mount Fuji and stuff for us on both sides of the plane, and and uh, then from there we went to. Uh, Tonsonwood Air Base. <clears throat> and again, I mean, just to point out to everyone, this is now, this is, is 1960, is it 69 yet? No. It's still 68? No, it's 69. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, a- this April is. April 69. The, the height of the war in Vietnam. Yeah. And you, well, it's one height, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess. Every, every, va- every battle is an individual's battle. You it, know? it wasn't, yeah. You've been there, done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I haven't, I haven't <laughs> been in the heights of the Vietnam War or any of the heights in the Vietnam yeah. War. No, 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 no. I know, but I mean, um, and and your attitude when you show up, you get there. What was that welcome to Vietnam? You were showing me a picture earlier, and you're like, "Hey, this is me. I just got there." And you guys yeah. are kind of sitting there. Me and Bob Look, Zikwa. Looks yeah. like you're getting some kind of an inbrief. Like, hey, here's what's going on. It was kind of it was kind of strange, you know. First thing you land on the ground and stuff is where's my weapon, you know, because you're obviously in a foreign country, and uh, in a hostile country too. <laughs> and they go, ah, don't worry about it. You get it. You get it. You know. And I'm going, okay. So then they they after that that little gathering there, and they said, okay, everybody jump on these. You know, actually, Bob and I got split up. He went with another company. I went with the company I I went with, and. Uh, it was kind of like, see ya. And um, so they threw us on the back of Medusa and a half, and then we went to uh, a, uh, God, what was the name of it? I should get the name of the places right. Anyways, it was a another staging area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're driving through these villages and stuff, and it's like, whoa. And you still yeah. don't have a weapon. You don't have a weapon, <laughs> no. You got one guy up there, you know, out of the, they used to have turrets in, in the uh, deuce and a half yeah. and stuff. And he's up there with the, the M16 and stuff, you know, it's kind of like, where's ours, you know. <laughs> and so you go into a, uh, a staging area and and you spend a couple of weeks there and they take you through what they call snake training. Oh, okay. and, and what it is, is it gets you familiar with the uh, area and, you know, the ants and the swamps and the... You know the water and the rain and you know and all this and they 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 uh, just introduce us to a lot of different things. You know it was it was interesting. Um, because I was a buck sergeant, uh, this one class this one class one day, they're all sitting on the bleachers, right? And the, and some lieutenant or captain or something says, "You why don't you sit here and and just monitor the radio?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." That day, the bleachers collapsed with all the guys on it, and they had broken legs and arms, and it was terrible. And I was going, whoa, luck. You know, that's all it was. 
how long was it before when you got done with snake training? Oh, yeah. And then they, uh, how long was it before you actually went to the field and connected with your unit? Just like two weeks. Okay. You know, we can have two weeks, something like that. And then uh, I got up to a, an area called Anlock. It was at the top of the Highway 13. And um, I asked the first sergeant, I, uh, I asked him, I said, well, how many tanks do we have? And he goes, we don't have any tanks. I go, well, I'm a tank commander. He goes, no, don't worry about it. We got something out there. It's got a turret on it and gun out front. And I go, oh, okay. And then I got introduced to the flame track. Yeah, so. And that's a is that a modified one one three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 180 gallons of napalm between your legs. Yeah. So it was a it, it was different and. In the hindsight, you know, I, I'm kind of glad I wasn't on a tank because <laughs> that's where my friend Bob, he was only the, in the country three weeks and got hit. You know, I mean, put the new guy in a lead tank, you know, take an RPG through the cupola, and he got shrapnel on the legs and stuff and got sent home. I mean, I wrote, I wrote in country to him numerous times. I'm going, I never got back, never, never got back. And finally his mom said, well, no, Bob's in Washington, you know, recovering from wounds. I'm going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, <clears throat> when you when you showed up there and you know you start you start meeting your your yeah. leadership. What what were they like? Were uh, we had Sergeant Sutherland. He's E six. He was part of the 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 flame platoon. Um, and I don't know, the, you know, and Red, Big Red, we call him. He's from, I think he was from Virginia or something like that. He was actually the guy that taught me how to use the flame pack because it's a chemical MOS. I didn't know anything about napalm or anything like that. So it was a learning process. So I rode uh, as a gunner on the track for, well, until my first firefight and stuff. And I was a side gunner on that one. And uh, so we learned. And it was really, it was kind of nice. You know, you go out and the first few weeks I was there and stuff, it was like, the country's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, don't get me wrong. And we were in the highlands, you know, so it was it was pretty cool. And um, so we were going in these villages and we'd take the medics in there and they'd help the kids out and whoever needed help and stuff, you know. And the village chief would invite us off the track and go in and have a little tea with them and stuff in his little dirt hut and you know, so it was uh, it was interesting. The mountain yard people, oh, okay, yeah, yeah mountain yards over there, nice people. I don't think they, I didn't think they they didn't like the North Vietnamese. I don't think they liked us either. But mm-hmm. I mean, they got along with us good. So, and so that was tough bunch. I know you did you did a a bunch of different like <clears throat> types of missions while you were there, like in terms of you did. Okay, let's just ask you, like, yeah. so what are the what are the various types of missions? that you guys were doing so one was what you just talked about you're going out into the villages right you're making yeah. friends you're handing out you know medical supplies candy that kind whatever of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um that we put a lot of road security and stuff and and uh you know that was my first firefight we went out to, to help some uh convoy of tanker trucks <laughs> Fuel trucks and actual, stuff. Actual tankers. Actual, actual, actual <laughs> tankers, yeah. And uh, they'd gotten ambushed and stuff, so we went out and, you know, you, you try to suppress that, or we were chasing these guys down and stuff, you know. But, so that, you know, that's your first That's your first firefight. That, that was my first firefight, yeah. How'd you take that? And the reason I ask this is yeah. because 
we get a lot of guys that are in the military or they're going in the military and I, w- I always ask people what, what, was, what were you thinking in your first firefight so that way when they're in that situation they have another little perspective of, of how to think about it so yeah. they can be because it's hard to get somebody prepared for that because everyone takes it a little bit differently oh absolutely so I think the more different perspectives someone can hear the better it is for them right so um so we were chasing these guys I don't know how many there were you know through the after this they ambushed the the convoy and stuff we were chasing them down through the jungle and uh, pretty thick in the jungle and stuff and it's you know high brush and trees and and um, so we broke out and they tried to keep the flame track kind of in the center of things, so it kind of semi-protected and, and whatever. But ended up, I ended up on the flank, on the left flank when we came out of the jungle. You know, because you get in there, you get lost, and you're looking around. And, and the tracks could power through the jungle? Yeah, because there was a lot of tree and high brush. Right. Okay, you know, head high or, you know, track high brush and, and a lot of trees. We broke out into this opening, <clears throat> and I was on the flank. And we're looking across, and it was a big rice paddy, and then there's another section of jungle beyond that. And Brad and I kind of look at each other, and we're going, oh, they couldn't have made it across there that fast. And just like that, we'd turn the track back towards the jungle front, and RPG hit my track right in the ass end. And then uh, a couple guys got blown off the top. Red was still on the 50. I was on the 60. And it's just instant training jumps in you know i saw the three guys that shot the rpg you know and uh just trained a 50 or 60 on them and red trained a 50 over there and and then by that time everybody else had turned back towards the jungle and started leveling it the recon outfit that i ran with um we had like five tracks each track had uh 350s on it uh, one of them had at one time had a 106. Each track had 350s on them, right? Wow, that's yeah. <laughs> so, my track, the track I was on, had 150 260s off, off either side or 160 off either side. So, it would be like the six tracks would be like a line company opening fire, you know, the line company was you know 18 tracks or whatever. It, I don't know how many tracks there were in the line company, but we had a lot of firepower. A lot of firepower. And so did you feel like, like you said, the training kicked in, you saw yeah, what was going on? I saw exactly what was going on and stuff, and we got hit and stuff. And, and then, you know, I, I ripped the 60 out of the mount and jumped off the back and was still firing it, you know, towards the guys and stuff. So, yeah. Did you use your uh, flamethrower on yeah, that one? did, yeah. Red <laughs> shot, yeah. Just to, just to encompass, you know, he shot way up over the top of the jungle and a big circle just to make sure you know so that's a that's a scary weapon right there (laughs) yeah it is yeah it is it's devastating but uh and man's always been afraid of fire yeah there's a there's a definite instinct with that no doubt about it yeah now would you guys would you guys return back to a base when you guys yes. got done with these operations? So you'd come back to a base and yeah, we had a base camp. I had my own little you know your underground bunker and stuff, you know, because we took a lot of artillery at night and you know the rocket fire and, and everything. So we had a little underground bunkers and that was that was 
Anlock was a good place. Well, it was the only place I knew at the time, so it had to be a good place. Would you say it's a good place, good in terms of the fact that you had it built up enough that there were some <laughs> right. creature comforts there? Well, no, I, not a whole lot of creature Creature comforts, comfort but, was a bunker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was comfortable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so, you know, and then uh, we, a couple of times we'd go out and you clear areas a little bit further away from the perimeter and everything, you know, so. And then the town, Anlock itself, was right next door to us. Yeah, so it was, we'd go through that village, you know, every day. Yeah. And what was the reaction from the folks that lived, the local populace that lived in Anlock? Mm. Were those mountain yards? You know, I don't know. I don't think they were, but I could be wrong. You know, don't quote me on that. Um, semi-friendly, we didn't get in contact with them too much. You know. We would, we were ready at that point after that, that first firefight. I mean, there was, there was, uh, a multitude of other ones. How long? Yeah. How long into? How long had you been on the ground before you got in that first firefight? Three weeks. So it was a couple of weeks of snake yeah, training. Yeah, I landed on. Uh, yeah, I landed the fifteenth, and then I think it was May second, April uh, April fifteenth. I landed, and then May second was the first firefight. And then I, I know some of the notes <clears throat> that you sent over was like you basically after that first one, it was just. Yeah, that's was, just the way it was. That was just life. That was life. Yeah, afterwards. And how would you guys? Would you guys take casualties often when you, um, when you when you get engagements because you had you know armor? It, it was your was your casualty rate lower? You think than a regular infantry unit? Oh, definitely, unit? definitely. Yeah, we were a lot better off than a lot of folks that were on the ground and stuff. So, um, one thing about. Um, if you do take a casualty, they're out of the field pretty fast. So you're busy doing this, you know, Jimmy's gone or Johnny's gone or, or, you know, you don't know until you get back to base camp whether you made it or not. So, yeah, they were pretty, I was thinking about that the other night, you know, because I, I was going, yeah, I don't really remember. I mean, I've seen a lot of guys get hit. You know, when we were doing joint operations or something like that, not necessarily, not necessarily my guys, but uh, I never lost anybody off my track. Yeah. And uh, the other tracks, maybe maybe one, maybe two. It was very low. And uh, how much <clears throat> was the enemy using mines on your tracks, and how effective were they? Um, <laughs> they're pretty effective. Um Depending on where you were, I mean, we had minesweepers and stuff that would sweep 13, Highway 13, you know, all depend on which fire base they were at, and and uh, they would they'd sweep, and we didn't, my track, not my track, but the track I had, and then I got a new one, I'd given to uh, a friend of mine, Doug Dodge, and uh, he hit a mine, uh, actually the day I gave it to him, <laughs> he went out on some mission, he had the other, the other flame track. And what yeah, so did he did? Did they lose guys? The, no, just blew the track off. You know, you know I, wasn't that I, as bad. I'm sitting here trying it was to figure like out a forty pounder or something like that, three forty pounder. Yeah, as I'm sitting here trying to think about because <clears throat> the the enemy in Iraq, which is which is where I was, yeah. they were really good with IEDs and they would take out vehicles, not just Humvees. They they take out Humvees. They take out tanks, tanks, yeah. and Bradleys, and and even the even the. Uh, mine resistant vehicles. They would take those things out because wow. they'd put these big bombs. But how often were you guys? I, I'm thinking in mm -hmm. my own head that the reason is because we were on roads. 
And so we were in channelized areas. You're going through a city, you're going to go down the road. There's no, you can't drive through the buildings. Correct. Yeah. And so it sounds like if you guys were were just driving through the jungle, driving through the rice paddies, you know, not too bad. You didn't have to be in a channelized area. So there was, it would be harder for the enemy to put the bombs in the, put the mines in the right place because they couldn't predict as well where you were going to be. Right. Um, a lot of the roads and stuff were uh, we did run the roads, and in some areas and stuff. I mean, I saw a, a M60 tank, you know, hit a 500 pounder, command detonated, you know, split it in half like that, or went off like this, you know, two guys lived, but you know, it was pretty devastating, and that was in front of us, in front of our column. But um, yeah, it's uh, and then I saw a uh, it was a M47 tank. We called it a duster. And it had uh, 40 millimeter pom pom guns on the side of it. It was a mean machine, you know. And uh, he pulled out of our our uh, base camp down in uh, Thunder Three, and uh, before they swept the roads, and he was he was hauling ass, and he didn't get hurt or anything. Blew the tracks off, but he hit a mine. Yeah. yeah. So you know, that's another thing that might have been just the technological advances for the insurgents in Iraq. You know, they had they had radio command detonated so mm. you didn't have to run wire so it was easier for them to to put mines out there yeah we we ran into a lot of places like bunker systems and stuff that had wires in them you know for tele, for communications and, and things you know but uh yeah the the, <clears throat> the mines i was in a situation where two tracks in front of me we we'd we'd take this is another firefight we were in and stuff we had the we had the uh if I'm jumping around, let me know. But, I mean, it's, yeah, it's all good. Um, we had, uh, I guess they were the elite force of the South Vietnamese, a tiger group or whatever they were, kind of their commandos and stuff. They threw them all on our tracks. And uh, so we went in this one area, and we got bushed, and there was nothing but RPGs flying through the air and, you know, machine gun fire and, and, and stuff. And we suppressed that. But all these guys, all the Tiger group, they jumped off the track. We're going, no, 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 don't, don't jump off. You know, we're going to move. You know, we we capability, you can move back and then read in, in advance. You know, I mean, you, you got to think about that. But they just jumped off, and they got in crossfires, ended up shooting themselves. And, <sighs> but anyways, you talked about the the, the uh, uh, mines. We had captured this, this one kid, and he, he was on the captain's track. And... Uh, so we were advancing. We were moving through uh, past the area where the bunkers were, and uh, the captain's track hit a mine. And we're just in columns, captain's tracks here. We got the ammunition tracks, the second one, and then my track. And so he hit a mine, blew the guy off, and he was sitting on the side and stuff, you know. And well, I don't. Anyways. Um, so the track in front of me, we're going, oh, shit. We're, they suckered us into a minefield is what they did because they had these mines behind the bunker system and stuff. And uh, we, so we, <laughs> we got in there. The track in front of me, all he did was traverse just a little bit like that. Bam, went off. And I was going, whoa. So I, had to, I got down off the track, and ground got in my track through its tracks, you know, because we all went through a column and stuff. But. Yeah, it was pretty hairy. So I guess uh, I was wrong. The mines were a big threat. <laughs> they, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Now that I think about it, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I think uh, the the vast majority of the casualties in in Iraq were from 
you know, from IEDs, from yeah. roadside bombs, because they they just they were good at it, and they yeah. it's a it's a weapon that you can you can execute. That's if, scary. I don't see how you guys did it, man. I that was that was what I thought was scarier than what I went through. So yeah, for sure. That's the yeah. thing that there's no that there's very uh, a limited amount you can do um, to prevent it. Now we did everything we could, and and sure. Uh, actually, my guys <laughs> never hit a mine in, never hit an IED in in Ramadi, and that was just, it was amazing. You know, it was a lot of luck. Sure, you know that's the grace of God looking out for us. Got but, <laughs> but, you know, we also were very proactive in how we planned to do. You know, our missions. We would, we would go after right after the minesweeping team would dry would go clear. We'd go down immediately after them, and that way, and then we'd get to where we want to be. And if we had to wait a couple hours, that'd be fine. We'd wait, yeah, yeah. but we we would try and mitigate that risk to the best of our ability because uh, the mines were 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 such a, a big threat. And it's one of those things that, yeah. What once you can, I think that's what. Uh, that's what that's what scares people the most because you have so little control over it. nothing. It's you like hey, if it happens, you're you, you could do everything right. You could follow the minesweeper. The minesweeper doesn't see everything. No, and you can follow the minesweeper yeah. and you can still get blown up. Go off the side of the road. Yeah, <laughs> look, that's a, it's a it's a definitely a scary thing. And you you talked about the uh, South Vietnamese guys getting in a you know shooting themselves. Yeah, which is. I believe that's going to happen a lot less when you're in armor because obviously it's pretty clear it's pretty it's a lot easier to identify hey that's a friendly because they're in a one one three like we right, are right, <laughs> whereas yeah. at Sometimes. nighttime yeah <laughs> and, and, and we we did have a situation it wasn't it wasn't us but it happened and that's I usually use this in it as an example of how easy a blue on blue you know mm. a, a friendly fire incident can happen it happened in Ramadi where a Humvee shot at another Humvee. Which again, the, the the insurgents did not have Humvees at all. Right. right. And mm-hmm. to think of what the mindset is of a kid to look and see another, you know, see movement that's a Humvee and take a, take some fire some shots at it. That shows you how nervous guys get sure. and how perception at night is different and how your mind starts playing tricks on you and you, the things are confusing and it can be, get pretty um, yeah well just confusing. It's the sure. fog of war. Yeah, night times are kind of, yeah, you know. Usually we hunker down at night. And you go out and you set out your your trip flares and claymores and and all that. And one night we did that, <clears throat> and one of the trip flares went off, and we thought everybody was back at base camp or back with us, you know. And uh, we started firing, and they, these guys hunkered down behind a tree and they yelled and they go, "Whoa, whoa, it's us!" You know, it's like, whoa. Okay. Well, I mean, the flare went off. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you need to brief people when you're leaving the perimeter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lesson yeah. learned. Yeah. yeah. When I was running training, I always tried to make it. I, I would. I would inject all that confusion because mm-hmm. I wanted the guys to have friendly fire incidents while they're in training, so they yeah. recognize what the things that the type of things that cause them. Yeah. You know, we we heard about it. You know things like that, but we, I was never involved. Other than that little incident, yeah, other there. than that little one, which, yeah, which, <laughs> which is, could have wasted two guys. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, that's a a, that's the scary thing. Luckily, yeah. your marksmanship was a little bit off that day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they caught us by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> what about the uh, you know um, <clears throat> how about the the arc light the B fifty two bombing? I know you you were telling one story about that. Oh Just, yeah, that was scary, kind of scary. We were chasing these guys. 
uh, and we got a call over the radio and says, hey, everybody stop. And we're, we're, we're in a, a strike zone. I went, what do you mean a strike zone? He says, yeah, B-52s. And they said, everybody hunker down, get behind the track. You know, it's coming and boom, boom, boom. And you could see, I, we looked up in the sky and I was going, whoa. And there was like five B-52s. And you could see all these 500,000 pounders. They're coming down. And um, <laughs> I didn't get off the track. I mean, you know, it's a 16-ton track, you know. And what's it going to do? And sure enough, boy, it, you know, the shockwave came and that track's rattling around. And we're going, oh, my God, you know. We saw the smoke first and then the shockwave hit. You know, it was pretty intense. How long would the, one of those missions last for? Like, how how long would those bombs be going off for? Oh, in this particular time, I, you know, it was like one plane after another. And, you know, probably a half hour, you know, <sighs> you know, 20 minutes, something like that, for them all to, to end. I, I'm not sure, yeah, you know. But it's, it was just, it's it an was extended there. period yeah, of time. Yeah, it's not like, yeah. Then you go and sweep the area, and we found some guys in there, you know. We saw one guy, interpreter was talking to him and stuff, and he's bleeding from his nose and his ears and his eyes, and, you know, the guy's he's still alive. And he said all he, the interpreter, so all he could do is every time one hit, he'd bounce in the air. They'd come back down. Another one hit, he'd bounce in the air again. So, yeah, that was intense. We weren't that close, yeah. you know, like he was. But, yeah. Now who would be coordinating that? Would you guys be coordinating those? No, we had no idea they were coming. <laughs> no, uh, it was in a certain area or something like that. You know, then you know. Obviously, we got the word. Yeah, my best friend. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I mean, the the B fifty two strikes. They did their thing, and and we'd sweep areas. You know, we lost a track one time in a bomb crater. You know, that was overgrown, and you know, actually flip and inside, and and uh, so. Like I said earlier, you know, Vietnam is a beautiful place. You know, if it wasn't for the war, it'd be great. You know, but there was a lot of bomb bomb craters. Um, the Cobra, I gotta say, is our pal. <laughs> I know you guys had Cobras over there. Or yep, you had yep. the what are the black uh, the, oh, the Apaches, Apaches, and Apaches stuff, yeah. yeah. But yeah. the Cobra pilots and stuff, they're pretty cool. They're yeah. pretty cool. We, we've had a Cobra pilot on the podcast. Have you? Yeah. 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 And he, he got shot down. Did he? Yeah. yeah. He got shot down twice. <laughs> the second time he got captured. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 Bravest guys I know. <laughs> they, they go into pretty close quarters. I yeah. mean, they come in. They used to come right behind us. We'd be in a firefight. they come in, you know, 50 feet over your head and they'd, rockets firing. So it's pretty intense. Interestingly, not only do we have still have cobras but you know in in, in ramadi um we had 113s the same vehicle that you guys drove we still had it and they yeah. used it primarily for casualty evacuation oh, okay but still um I, I was in the back of the 113s over in ramadi what's that 30 years something later 40 yeah. years later yeah using the same vehicles and the I'll same helicopters there. why not it worked. <laughs> yeah. My track didn't have much room inside because of the napalm tanks and stuff. You know, the other 113s, they had plenty of room. They, they used to, I could only carry like 2,100 rounds of 50 on my track. You know, they had 6,000 rounds of theirs, you know, so. How scary is it when you got your track filled with napalm? I didn't think about it too much. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that would have been in the back of my head a little bit. It is. It is, you know, and, and I was... So I, <laughs> we used to play with it once in a while. It was funny. 
you should mention that because at the end of shooting it, you could because it's uh, gas and you have igniters, mm-hmm. and then you have raw gasoline, and uh, so I used to blow out these. I don't know. What I, have, I might have a picture in there. Uh, big billows of flame used to roll out, you know, because they used to pop it and then then let off, you know. And uh, we had a chemical guy come up to check out the, the tracks and stuff. And uh, I was telling him what I was doing. He goes, you did what? I go, yeah, you play with it, you know, after, after it empties and stuff, you know, you can roll out this big giant, I mean, as big as this room, <laughs> and ball of fire. And uh, he goes, don't ever do that again. <laughs> I go, why? Because the pressure inside, because I didn't know that much about the hydraulics and pressure. <laughs> I learned real quick. But, um, <laughs> it'll suck the flame back in. Yeesh. It'll blow the tanks up. I go, whoa. So after that, it was like the track lasts for like, I mean, if you powered it on, it's like 32 seconds of, of rod like that flying out. And uh, then you just get rid of the ga- the the air, you know. So tw- I think it's twenty seven hundred psi or something like that. So yeah, you're virtually a, a bomb. You're yeah. ready to happen. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think that would have been in the back of my mind a little bit. And you <laughs> took you took an RPG. Yeah. And, and how did that not do massive damage? Um. Well, the tracks are aluminum. Yeah. All right. So once the RPG is ignited, you have that rod that comes out, and it just went through. The back end, then out. So it did right it through over. and through. Yeah, right uh, through. So yeah. it must it must not so have detonated cr- or something. Oh, it detonated. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So you had shrapnel, and oh, I can okay. show you a picture of all the ammo that I had in the back. There's all blown up, and it <laughs> scarred the tank, and uh, went out over the top of the track, you know, on the right hand, right rear side, and um, yeah, we were just lucky. Yeah. Rather be lucky than good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and, and uh, how about the w- w- how well did the tanks work in the jungle? As far as like once it was wet, once the rainy season comes and tanks, yeah, the big ones, or or, or even the tracks the that you drove. Um, the mud and stuff was kind of tough. Yeah, it was it was tough. They took our um, uh, neutral steer. We didn't have that. They just had the laterals and stuff to use because the neutral steer you got one track going one way mm-hmm. and one track going the other and. And uh, they'd throw tracks pretty easy in the mud. Uh, yeah. So it was just right or left. <laughs> yeah. Or back up. Yeah. And, and then, uh, so you you got, <clears throat> you ended up getting wounded. What, what, how'd you get wounded? I don't know whether it's shrapnel from, from the RPG or uh, we opened the breach at the 50 and a 50 cal blew up in, in my face. And, you know, because we were firing so many rounds and stuff and you get cook offs. Mm-hmm. You know, it just cooked off, and we thought it was done. It wasn't. Boom, and blew me off the track. So I, it wasn't it. I went to the medic, you know, because I had a little got hit in the eye. That was it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I got shot or. You know, so it's it re- relatively minor. Wound. Yeah, it was absolutely. You know, absolutely. Well, we'll think we'll be thankful about that one. Yeah, <laughs> didn't lose an eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When um. <clears throat> when you would stay out, how long would you guys stay out in the field for? Uh, the longest we did was probably about, I'd say, six weeks. <sighs> I thought you were going to say, like, you know, a few days, three, four days, six weeks. Oh, well, that's so, when we were moving. And and you guys would live out of your tracks? You guys must have gotten good at living out of your tracks. Yeah, then, I mean, you had everything on out it. There. Yeah, 
<laughs> everything you own. Would you dig right in there. at night or would you sleep in the tracks? Mm, like I usually, like if it was raining or something like that, I'd throw a poncho up over the over the track and tie it down and live, uh, sleep on one of the stretchers that we carried. You know, so it was and how many like, guys were in a track when it w- was assigned to you and your track? <laughs> we had most of the uh, recon tracks had five guys on it. Uh, you had a driver, main gunner, two other guys, had four guys. And at first, mine was like that. And uh, so we had four, you know. When you looked at it from like the big picture of what you guys were doing over there, <clears throat> did you feel like, hey, we're making progress? Did you feel like, hey, we're just trying to get by? Did you did you get any strategic guidance from up the chain of command? Like, hey, this is our purpose for being here? Mm, that's a tough question. Each day was different. Uh, we would have missions that we would go on. And uh, sometimes we'd get hit, sometimes we wouldn't. Uh, and those missions would just be going into an area and, and checking it out. Um, as far as accomplishing things, you know, it was an individual thing. I mean, it was not an individual like my, mm-hmm. myself or anything, but, I mean, as a group, you just, you know, go where they told you to and do what you could yeah it was uh you're talking about is there an end result that we saw or yeah i mean i guess i'm just asking especially from like a leadership perspective you know i always talk about the fact that if your frontline troops don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it then eventually they're they don't see any purpose in what they're doing and that's where you start getting negative reactions you know, whereas at least if you say, hey, look, this is what we're trying to get done today. We're trying to get this area cleared. We're trying to, this is going to contribute to this larger right. success no, 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 or something no. like that. On that respect, yes. Yeah. But I mean, as a big picture, like the whole country and stuff, yeah. no, I didn't, we didn't think too much about that. But uh, our individual uh, things, yeah. Okay. We, we know there's a bunker complex over here. We're going to go into it, you yeah. know. So you plan that strategically. I mean, you have people out there we have alerts and stuff you know that would, would alert us of you know certain areas hot spots or intelligence would come down and say okay there's a thousand troops coming down through the michelin or there's a thousand troops coming out of the highlands or there's a hundred troops over here or, you know that gets your your blood pumping because we're only six tracks <laughs> well we had other we worked with mm-hmm. the 11th cav and and the I think it was the first 28th or something that worked with us and stuff. We, we worked with other companies too. You know, they would utilize us to go help them, or uh, we they would help us, or you know, we were. That's when we were like a re- ready reactionary force. You know, you'd go out and you know, base camp got hit. You know, in the middle of the night, so you're up at two o'clock in the morning trying to gather all your troops and stuff out of their bunkers to run a road down to some base camp that's eventually going to get either overrun or you know they're blowing through the wire and and they're coming inside the compound and stuff so we go in and reinforce them that had to be a tough that tough kind of operation right there just out of a deconfliction between you know if you've got bad guys that are in the inside the wire oh that's nasty that's uh that's a scary thing yeah when you go into that what are your what's your thought process going into that Mm, protect yourself and the guys around you that's all you could do you know, I mean, it's just uh, 
try to figure out where you, the area they're coming in through. You know, they use the Bangalore torpedoes and stuff, blow mm-hmm. holes in a wire, and, and they, they run on through. And it's, you know, then, okay, you're going to concentrate in that area. You know, so if a few of them get through, they get through. I mean, you have other infantry on, on the ground and stuff that they're dug in. You know, they're taking care of themselves, so they kind of know what's going on. It's kind of like you don't know everything that's going on, mm-hmm. but you can see around you what's happening. So uh, you try to diffuse that. Did you guys, when you guys would come back to base and you'd be in bunkers, you'd still be in the field, you'd still be getting artillery, you know, rocked with artillery and the rockets usually yeah rockets too yeah. oh great um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh w- would Mortars. you guys would you ever get um during your time there would they ever let you go back to somewhere where you could get a break and get some r&r um they had in, in yeah yeah uh, our longer missions and stuff they'd 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 do a little stand down and mm-hmm. You know, for three days or something, you know, go drink yourself silly and <laughs> swim in the pool and and where would and, you go uh, for that? You know, I don't know exactly where it was. It was someplace in country, it was like, like down at uh, Lyke or uh, just outside Saigon or. So occasionally you get they give you a little breather. Yeah, not much. You know, I mean, I went to Thailand and I went to Australia. You know, that was my big R and R's and stuff. You know, but uh, you know, a few people go to Hawaii. Yeah. I never, you know, I didn't want to do that. They'd come back and see their folks and stuff. It was kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean scary from the fact that it's like, you No, know. what happens is, you, especially if you, when we communicated with our people back here, it's usually by letter tape, you know, a, a cassette tape. And uh, they'd talk and we'd talk and send it in, in, the, in the mail and stuff, you know. And so the guys that left and went to um, see, like, their loved ones and stuff, like in Hawaii and stuff, when they came back, their head's not, you know, it's not there. You know, it's kind of like, you know, Johnny ain't got the gun. <laughs> yeah, no, I... <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's, uh, it's not a good thing. Yeah, people, you know, I've talked about that with a bunch of people, but the fact that nowadays, and there's there's positives <laughs> and there's negatives to it, right? right? There's positives right. and there's because ne- nowadays with the Internet, you can literally go face to face with your family every night that you're not in the field. You can jump on there and you can talk to them and you can see them. And I don't know, I'm sure that's good for some people. For me, that's not a good thing. For me, you know, when I was overseas, I was overseas. And I would talk to my wife and kids like once a week. Mm -hmm. I'd call them, we'd talk for five minutes. I'd ask them how's, you know, the standard, whatever questions they are. Mm -hmm. How's school? How's everything going? Uh, Okay, you know, Daddy loves you. We'll 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 talk to you. You know next week, and I'll tell you. Even I was very emotionally detached from my family when I was overseas, and it's hard to explain to people. You know, at that time I had three kids. Now I have four kids. But um, you know, I've told this story about the fact that my kids, my wife said, sent me an email that said, "Oh, can you take a picture of where you sleep at night?" Because because the kids want to see where you sleep. Yeah. And, I, and I, we had an old, old Saddam palace and I had one of the rooms there and I had a plywood um, you know, bed with a crappy you know, mattress yeah. on it. <laughs> and the plywood bed you know, had like a, a headboard on it, right? But it was just blank, it was just plywood. Sure. And I took a picture of it on a little digital camera and I was gonna send it to my wife and I looked at it and I realized it was that 
it was just there was nothing there. <laughs> so I opened up a folder that I had in a drawer, and I took pictures of my wife and kids up, and I and I hung them up. Oh, cool! And then I took a picture, and then I took them back down. I put them back in the folder. I put them back in the drawer because, man, I didn't want to see. And again, this sounds horrible yeah. to say, but it's it's directly related to what you're saying. Is I didn't want to see my wife and my kids every single day, every single morning when I woke up, every single night before I went. I didn't. I didn't want to see no, them you because start worrying about them. Because I got a job to do, and yeah. the, the people that I really need to worry about at this point were my guys, and so I, I totally agree with that. You know, you you want to have some sort of emotional detachment from your family. Now, can you go too far with this? Absolutely, you can go too far with this, and now all of a sudden, you know, you you you, you get too detached, right. and your family doesn't mean anything to you anymore, and that's going to be a problem as well. So, you but I think people got to pay attention to that and find that 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 medium that happy medium where if they are still enough touch but it's not it's not dragging them off right. because yeah you don't want to let that happen <laughs> no you don't uh, be focused on those other things when you, yeah, need to you focus had, on yeah you had your quiet times and stuff you could listen to the cassette you know and at least hear their voice or you get a, a care package or something you know it's got some good cookies in it from home or, or something like that so yeah you take time in your bunker or whatever you know and you relax and you, you do that but no as far as running down to the Mars station, which I guess they had a Mars station somewhere in, in Vietnam, you know, where you could make a phone call back to the States. I mean, I never did, but, uh, you know, a few people did, just just by telephone. But now today, yeah, like you yeah. say, I mean, it's like, the, the see, other thing, you can see daddy on a big screen, oof. you know. The other thing <laughs> that I think it happens is, is you, if you're worried about those things, you <clears throat> you start to be less aggressive and in my opinion when you're less aggressive on the battlefield you'll end up in more trouble than if you're Absolutely. if you're if you're offensive you Absolutely, know? yeah that's uh, the guys that I ran with uh, they're pre- pretty tight group I don't think as tight as you Navy SEALs guys are but you know uh, all of us had a different story in life and and uh, but as far as getting the job done that we were out to do, we did a pretty good job, I think. I'll tell you, I worked with all kinds of guys in the Army and the Marine Corps, and the the camaraderie in any military unit, yeah. especially once you're fighting hard, it's it's all it's all awesome and it's all yeah. super tight. Yeah. And I'm sure your guys going out on mission for six weeks, living in a track, <laughs> you yeah, know, fighting the enemy. It could have been less than that, but I mean, it's, any time is, is a long time, you yeah. know, when you're, at, you're spending the night. There was just one time when we were traveling, and uh, we were having supplies hard to keep, keep up with us and stuff, you know. So it was, you know, you no water, you know, the fuel, and uh, you ended up, you know, bathing in bomb bomb craters and. And, and things like that. So, and then you don't know where you're going. I know I, I was a lousy map reader over there because everything's <laughs> flat. Um, so no GPS. No, no, no <laughs> GPS. But somebody knew where they were going. Yeah, we'd follow them. <laughs> I mean, it's really the technological advances there are very, very high. Oh, you know, you yeah. know, we got the guys will be looking at a map, a moving map, and it's showing exactly not only where you are, but where all your other yeah. friendly guys are. It's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so we we had none of that. None of that. So would you, what would you <clears throat> have to pay attention to guys to make sure that, I mean, you know, you're in that sustained combat, making sure that guys weren't, 
getting to a point where you know they they needed a break um my drivers and stuff were i went through quite a few drivers i mean not that they they just went on to do something else right. i mean that was kind of their starting point and uh they drove for me but you could tell i mean i had one driver he just jumped out of the hatch we were getting fired at and stuff he jumped out of the hatch and i was like get back <laughs> in dude i'm not driving it i'm <laughs> i'm on my 50 you know and we're moving out of the area you know because we're getting away from what was happening because we regroup and go back in and he goes, oh, I can't do it. And he's throwing up, and you know, cause he's scared. Yeah, and he's scared. And a lot of guys are scared, you know. And uh, mostly the drivers, because they're they're kind of confined, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, we're kind of freewheeling with the fifties and the sixties off the sides and stuff. So, um, yeah, you jump down and say, you know, get back in the track, boom, smack him upside the head, and you get, you know, you get in, and then you leave, but. Then maybe you go back to base camp and say maybe that's not the guy for mm-hmm. for this mission or these missions, you know. So you go on and do something else. Well, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because I mean I, I guess maybe you're just a mellow guy because you're telling these stories about doing this and doing that, <laughs> and you, and you're making it sound like you're going out to uh, In and Out Burger to grab a <laughs> burger, and in reality you got just to just to put it in perspective, some of the guys that you're with are are scared and throwing up from fear and so oh, that's yeah. yeah it's horrible um you you take care of those guys <laughs> you know so you can get them back to base camp or whatever you know and then or they overcome you know what what was bothering them um rose is a perfect example uh this kid from des moines um Good, nice young kid and stuff, you know. But you couldn't shoot somebody one day, and and you know. So I I grabbed the gun right out of his hand and shot the guy. So, but that was just one incident. You know, we we ran into some pretty heavy duty guys, and and uh, they took out a track right in front of me, and and they were in a bunker, and they were they were doing some damage, and uh, Rose just got he froze, well, he froze. You just can't do that. What? So how'd you handle Rose after that? <clears throat> He mellowed out a little bit, and uh, he ended up being a pretty good driver, you know. So, I mean, he got over that, I think. Uh, but, again, that driver moved on. Yeah, it's, a, it's another kind of misconception in the in the military that if you're in a leadership position, you're just going to bark orders and you're going to yell and people are going to listen no. to you because you <laughs> – <laughs> and, and you're just giving these beautiful examples of the fact that, like, okay – you got to have the understanding of the person you got to they're going to people are going to make mistakes people are going to get scared and it doesn't matter how mad you yell at them it doesn't matter what yeah, you need help. To, yeah it won't help yeah. you need to develop a relationship with them you need to get to know them you need to understand them mm-hmm. and then just because they you know you you learn something about them if they have a a shortfall like that like you said maybe I'm not going to put him in that position again right. but where can I use this individual absolutely yeah and and a lot of times people view the military you know especially Especially when they see a full metal jacket where it's, you know, the drill sergeant yelling for 45 minutes in the movie or the, the drill instructor move, yelling for, for 45 minutes in the movie. They think that's what military leadership is. And the classic examples that you're talking about of what real military leadership is like, and it's really it's the same as all leadership, but getting to know your yeah. people, building yeah. a team, figuring out what your mission is. And you're not better than they are. You know, and and you know that was pointed out to me one time by a by a colonel, and 
you live with these guys. You live on the track with them. You know, you live in in in, in the groups. The sergeants. You know, we we'll get together and we'll have meetings and stuff. You know, and the guys will be out on the tracks cleaning whatever they're doing. Um, we happened to be filling sandbags one day. Got my shirt off, filling sandbags. You know, my guys actually he was one of my drivers, was holding a bag and filling it. And this colonel and he was in uh, communications area. He says, Sergeant, I'll come here. Oh, shoots. Okay. And so I went in and says, hey, uh, he goes, you see that shade over there? I go, yeah. He goes, go sit down in there and watch your guys fill sandbags. I'm going, whoa. I'm going, I, you know, um, these guys are, you know, part of me. He goes, it doesn't matter. And you just sit in the shade, watch them do it. And he says, if you, if you want to fill sandbags, you know, I can make it so you can do that. And he was going to take rank from me, you know. And I said, well, okay. And I, but I had to go and I explained to my guys. I said, look, I'm sitting in the shade over here. You guys are filling sandbags. So, it's, you know, little things like that. So, well, they, so what they was want, his point in, in saying his that? His point was because I was a sergeant and they mm-hmm. were privates and they should be doing the work and you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be watching mm-hmm. them do the work. And I'm going, it was hard for me. Yeah. You know, but. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that you had better leadership instincts than your colonel at that point. <laughs> I guarantee it because that's uh-huh. that's what that's what makes your guys. If you if your mentality is, hey, my guys will respect me if I sit over here in the shade when they're working, that's just the wrong mentality. Yeah. And, they knew they knew what yeah. was going on. Yeah. yeah, that's truly that's a again yeah. that's just a classic example of good leadership. As opposed to what people think, like, hey, all the sergeant's going to be over here watching you with his hands in his pockets while you guys do the work. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm actually going to be here with you guys. We're <clears> going <throat> to we're going to build. I'm part of the team. And there's times, of course, there's times where you got to go to a meeting. You know, you got to oh, go, yeah. and yeah. and your team now looks at you like, hey, you go do your job, and we're yeah. going to do our job. And at some point, you're going to ha- when you have some spare time, you'll come help us with our job. And and you know what, you're going to come back at some point and say, hey, I need help with this plan. I need help with uh, getting this getting these maps put together getting these right. waypoints figured yeah. out or whatever and they're going to help you and it's much more about building a team than it is to that it is about i'm going to tell you what to do and i'm going to sit in the shade while you're filling sandbags As a matter of fact our new book we, <laughs> our new book we talk about the fact that you know leif's platoon came back to a to a, a a combat outpost and there was a bunch of army guys they were filling sandbags up they actually weren't filling the sandbags they were already filled but they were moving the sandbags up to the rooftop of some of the buildings on the combat outpost and Leif's like, hey, you know, my guys are going to help out. And, you know, it's like the this, it's a small little, it's a small little, you know, indication of, hey, like you said, we're, we're not better than you. Yeah. We're here. We're we're going to bleed the same blood. We're going to sweat the same sweat. And we're going to fill and, and the move thing, the yeah. same sandbags. Yeah. Another topic <laughs> that's come up, um, some of the guys talking about uh, Vietnam. And believe it or not, I think it's, I think it's sixty percent, roughly, of the of the uh, service members that fought in World War II. It was higher; sixty percent were draftees. Mm. In Vietnam, it was twenty five percent. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why people focus more on Vietnam draftees rather than World War II draftees. Because in World War II, the whole country was at war. Right? right, the whole country was at war. And it was everything from, hey, we're not going to eat meat tonight, or we're not going to get new tires because we need that for the troops. Yeah. So the whole country is at war. Vietnam was different than that. I mean, as you said earlier, you know, Vietnam War was happening, and 
you were surfing, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so when the draft started coming, it was like, okay, it's it was a different reaction. So I think that's part of it. But I have, I talk with uh, a lot of companies now and people will bring up the question of millennials and hey, you know, the millennials, they don't want to work and it's really hard to work with them. And I've explained to a bunch of them now that, you know, in the Vietnam War, they had soldiers Marines that had been drafted didn't want to go had their had a normal job or had their life going on In many cases didn't believe in the war didn't believe in what we were doing right. and yet good leaders Would take those draftees and David Hackworth who's a guy that I've read his books and talk about him a lot He loved his draftees and he said oh, yeah those guys they fought hard if the, if I was doing something stupid, they would tell me. I actually enjoyed having guys that would raise because they weren't a career guy that's trying to kiss my ass and say, "Hey, that sounds great, boss." No, they'd say, "Hey, that's actually a dumb idea." <laughs> and so yeah. this idea that that um, these draftees were, if you if they, the draftees were under good leadership, the the leaders that I've had on here, I've had quite a few guys from Vietnam that were you know ground ground commanders on in Vietnam and they said oh I couldn't tell the draftees from the from the lifers because they all worked hard they all did their job whereas if you read people that maybe weren't good leaders that would have an attitude you know that was oh the draftees didn't want to do it they, they, they didn't work she hard did, they yeah. didn't do their job it's to me it's not about the draftees to me it's about the leaders right. and you're a great example you know yeah. of of a guy that not only said okay Hey, did you want to go to Vietnam in 1960, in 1968, getting pulled out of, you know, going to college and skiing and surfing? No, but guess what? Okay, you're going to go do your job. You not only did your job, did it well, and also stepped up and led other people that were in the same situation you were in. Yeah, I had great leaders, too. You know, I mean, the people we can look up to. And we had this one uh, lieutenant who became the captain of our outfit, and uh, he was with another another company, and uh, they were in a situation where almost all of them got sniped because we, <clears throat> like the commanders and stuff, the, the captains, lieutenants, and the colonels, they'd all ride on the side of the track and had a little chair for them there, you know, makeshift something or other. But they ride on the side, and they went into to uh, in a place called Nui Baden, and I guess they sniped almost all of them. Anyways, we got this this lieutenant from there that uh, he was I don't, I don't say he's the last survivor but I mean he was one of those that didn't get sniped and uh, he became the, the leader of our great guy great guy and uh, but there were other ones too I mean everybody got got along pretty good yeah. I refused to go out one time <clears throat> on a mission it was a it was a uh, S&D at night and uh, literally, I didn't want to <laughs> much want to go because I knew it was going to be a real cluster. And anytime you do uh, run roads at night uh, without knowing exactly what you're, where you're going, or what you're doing, you know, and uh, they were just going to go out and search and destroy and see what they could run into. And I'm, <laughs> and I've been there a while, so I, I'm going problem with that was <clears throat> and I did I kind of overstepped this lieutenant's uh, authority a little bit and I t talked to my captain I mean I just like I'm, I'm gonna look you know by the book the flame tracks was to stay inside the compound at night and that's just I, somewhere I read it mm -hmm. or something like that he wanted me to go with him 
And um, I said, I don't know. So I talked to my captain. Anyways, I didn't, I didn't go. I didn't have to go. And they went out and they came back and they bumped one guy off, you know, on a hill someplace. You know, he ended up walking back into base camp and another guy broke his arm on a tree limb. You know, you don't see it at night too well. Mm-hmm. And you can't go busting through the jungle with big lights on. And, uh, but he got back at me. He goes, okay. So you're going to be protected at night. And not necessarily protected, but I mean, you're inside the compound. I ended up, I had to take my two 60s off. My two guys that were on those 60s left. And all I was left with was my 50 cal, the flame, and my driver. Mm. So I'm going, whoa. I mean, that wasn't a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it could have been worse if we'd gone out on a mission. You know, I don't, I don't know. Anyways. So later on in um, <laughs> my time there, I became resupply sergeant in the field. This is kind of after, you know, we've been through quite a few firefights and stuff, and they said, well, okay, it's time to slow down a little bit. So I became resupply sergeant, but it was resupply in the field. So I was still running with the same guys I was with, except I got to fly a a shit hook back and forth to to uh, someplace else to pick up fuel and 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 food and stuff and then deliver it to to my guys. Unfortunately, that lieutenant's outfit got fuel last. They got food last. <laughs> they got you know it's kind of chicken shit. I I shouldn't really have, have done anything like that. But I was going like took weapons away from me, man. I mean that's my <laughs> livelihood out there, you know. This is one of those is one of these things where, um, again, from my perspective, I was trying to look at things from a leadership perspective. If I've got an experienced guy that's uh, that's telling me that something is wrong or telling me I should do something a different way, mm. then I'm going to listen to him. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And if you were telling me, "Hey, this doesn't make any sense to go out at night. This is not a good idea," I'm going to say, "You know what?" okay, let's reconsider why we're doing this mission and, and how we're going to execute this thing. To me, that's that's part of leadership. And again, if I took care of you by saying, okay, tell me, explain this to me, and we had a real conversation about why it is you don't think we should go out, because maybe there's some things that I could have done to mitigate that. Say, you know what, since you are in the flame, maybe we'll put you in the back, or we'll do something different. And then at a minimum, you 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 are happy that I listened to you. I didn't just bark and order you, no, this is what we're going to do. Because what does that end up turning into? What that ends up turning into is you got a negative attitude towards me. And mm-hmm. as a leader, I don't want you to have a negative attitude towards me because guess what you end up doing? You end up in a position where you're not giving me my resupply when, <laughs> when I want it, which is, which is again, these things just boil down to having respect up and down the chain of command. Right. And if you listen to the people below you in the chain of command, let, let's let's ask this question. If I was in that guy's shoes, I'd say, okay, I got Sergeant Hall, he's telling me he doesn't wanna go out. Why is he saying that? Let me listen to him. He's saying it's gonna be hard to maneuver at night. He's got more experience than me. Maybe I should listen to him. And on top of that, what am I going to accomplish tonight? Is it my ego that wants to go out? Because sometimes just, no, we're gonna go out. No, no, Hall, you're going to listen to me. We're going to go out. This And that just becomes my ego versus your ego. And, of course, can I win that contest? Yes, because I outrank you. Yeah. So we're going to do what I said. But what is that? What, how does that really help? It doesn't. It doesn't help bring our team together. So that's another thing to think about yeah. when it comes to just this stuff from a leadership perspective is, is if you listen to the people below you in the chain of command and you hear them out and you take – 
to into consideration what they're telling you it is going to number one it's going to improve the way you do your job because yeah. if oh, who's smarter me who just got here or you who've been here for eight months you're gonna have more information you're gonna know more than I do it's gonna make me better if I listen and we're gonna accomplish our mission better if I listen and on top of that it's gonna strengthen the bonds that we have because we're reciprocating thought between our brains and we're listening to each other and that brings us tighter together so these little leadership lessons are important there, there was no more SD in at night after that mission though well there you go <laughs> so so and what you did know, he prove so by that you know I nothing. mean I bet your captain went to him and said hey listen what, what you know hey listen lieutenant if you got Hall telling you we shouldn't be doing this I'll let you do it tonight because you want to prove your little point but that's they, it basically that's yeah what happened. so so there you go so he, he he cost himself some leadership capital that actually ended up hurting him later on in the resupply <laughs> well, I took care of his guys but I mean it, was, it made it look like he was going to yeah. get the last stuff but it was, I'd never do that to anybody like, yeah no I mean, you, you, you know. took care of him but you you made him yeah. wait for it made a little point <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Murder Plantation was exciting so we're cruising one day we're coming back to base camp and we're all in a calm we're just cruising along normal like and the lead track takes a couple sniper rounds <laughs> You know, we're going, well, it's coming from the hillside up here. So we pulled in a little half shoe, you know, and, and just let go with 1850 calibers or 17, whatever it is, <laughs> up into the hillside. It's all Michelin rubber plantation stuff up in there. And then it, it quieted down. You know, nothing's coming back. We're going, okay, you know, things are over. I got a quarter of my eye, and down the road I can see dust coming down there, and here's a red, white, and blue Ford Bronco, fairly new one. I'm pretty sure it was blue. I, I know I know it was white and red, and it had some blue on it. And he comes in, and he brodies right into our little horseshoe there. <laughs> I was going, what the heck? And he gets off and goes over and talks to the colonel. It's colonel McKenzie. And um, colonel jumps off the track and stuff, and this guy's sitting there, and he's doing like this. I go, what the hell? jumps back in he's got his little plantation worker with him too he jumps back in his his bronco and he takes off and i walked over colonel i says well, why would that guy come in the middle of this, this little the firefight he goes well we pay fifteen hundred dollars a piece to oh. that, that guy for those trees and a 50 caliber hit that tree it bleed the tree out and bleeds the rubber out so i'm going <laughs> oh that's a good gig <laughs> Send his plantation and we'll go over up there in a couple pot shots. Don't hit anybody. <laughs> That's one way to make money off the yeah. U.S. government. Oh yeah, the Michelin the Michelin plantation was it was pretty good. They they uh, they had this thing though because there was a lot of movement down through the plantation, you know, of, of troops and stuff. So they came out with this, this idea about okay, we'll have red zones and green zones. Red zone, anybody inside the red zone, and it, one clicks square right and anybody in the red zone you know that that's free fire mm -hmm. in green zone no because you have the plantation workers you know stirring the pot and stuff well they used to melt right into the the and, and we get workers that we'd seen before that are in red zones and we're going this is gonna go work out good <laughs> <laughs> so anyways they, they they stopped doing it yeah that's <laughs> that's my story i'm sticking to it yeah <laughs> like i said that's one way to make money off yeah. the u.s government for sure well unfortunately <laughs> And so you ended up doing how how long how long in Vietnam? Uh, ten months, twenty two days. 
And then was that that was shorter than a normal normal? I got tour. early out to go back to school. Uh, company clerk one day came out in the field. He's delivering checks and or money or whatever. And uh, he says, "You know, Sergeant Hall, you can get early out. They just approved something or rather." I go, "How do I do that?" You know, I'm up. You know. <laughs> um, he says, "Well, you just need a letter from the school." You know, and I wrote my mom by mail <laughs> and uh sure enough she she registered me at at uh the college at uh, grossman college and so i got out a little bit earlier and that was because nixon was at this point looking think, to try I and think downsize things were slowing down yeah things were slowing down you know, a little bit so they wanted to get guys out uh, hey well before we before we kind of wrap <clears throat> on vietnam but one, mm-hmm. one more th- one more note that you made was about your uh, your medic Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to touch on that one before we come back. I wish to I knew his name. I wish I knew his name. Um, we were we got in the shit a little bit, and uh, he was a CO, a conscientious objector, and uh, hell of a medic, bravest guy I ever knew. And uh, one day we got in the shit, and he was right on my track, and he picked up a, a weapon and started firing, and uh, to save his ass, you know, and ours. You know, and uh, but he never did it again. Mm-hmm. Never did it again. But then the rest of the time, you're saying he would. No, he brave. Yeah, he, he was insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good guy, really good guy. Yeah. And there's there's just I mean what kind of that, that's an incredible. Again, just talking about from a leadership perspective, you got a guy in your unit that's a conscientious objector that doesn't want to be at war and yet you got him out there and he's risking his life and even in the moment of truth he actually steps up and no he could see what was happening yeah <laughs> yeah what yeah. was going on that he needed to step up that's gonna be a pretty uh, dire situation yeah they're puffing up out of the bush pretty good and and uh and you know i didn't have any control where they were or anything you know you see guys over here okay you can fire over there and they were starting to hit us from the from the rear, and uh, he happened to be there, and, and uh, so he picked up the sixty and and started having at it. Yeah. What's the rule, <coughs> or like, what's the whole situation with a conscientious objector? Like, what he doesn't it's one that serves, and but he doesn't want to want to kill anybody. I mean, he doesn't want to shoot. He doesn't want to you know carry weapons or anything. I mean, he wouldn't even carry a forty five. He carried a medic bag. <laughs> and that's just cool with everybody, and that's so it's like an understood thing. Like, hey, I dig it. Your views on this whole thing. Come do your job. We don't expect you to fight right. or whatever. Right? Huh? Yeah. yeah there's there's but small stop my bleeding. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. You know? Yes, yes. Yeah, and Thank and he was good at that. Yeah, yeah. How I, common is that? It's it's not very it's common. Not very. I don't think. Yeah. Not very common. I'd yeah. say it might have been more common in World War. Two mm-hmm. only because I th- and this is like complete speculation on my part. In Vietnam, someone that didn't want to fight was more apt to just run away to Canada or uh-huh. something, or get a deferment for whatever you know medical. Or yeah. but it seems like in World War Two again, because the whole country was at war, right. yeah. that they would be like, well, uh, you know, I'm just gonna be a country. And there's a there's the movie about the the guy that won the was awarded the Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah. And he was a conscientious objector and he saved a. What like seventy five or hundred yeah, people? Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. Know, yeah, and, and yeah. took massive risks to to make it happen. Does that go down? Go on now nowadays? Like in mm. Iraq or anything? I I have never met a conscientious objector 
myself no mm. so i don't know mm. i haven't heard of it lately mm. it was just something that was you know he's a great guy you know and he just didn't you know that's okay he's a medic yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess it really, I guess it really yeah. wouldn't go on now because there's no draft so if there's no draft you don't need to go so if you don't need to go you're just yeah. you're just not go yeah whereas vietnam they had the draft yeah unless yeah unless they have you know people they have their principles where they're mm-hmm. like hey i want to go make a difference yeah but you you know they're kind yeah, of detailed in maybe their that, deal maybe that person would go in the peace corps instead of the marine corps yeah, or maybe yeah, being, being resupply there you go yeah <laughs> they have options now yeah. more yeah, yeah yeah makes sense yeah i captured two guys over there one time and i know the medic you get a little upset and uh, i was on a mission we were we were tailing some guys that were surveyors or something like that and pulling security for them and stuff we were coming back and i was on battalion radio and uh this is after we got tried we got overrun on th- at thunder three a few days later and uh so we're cruising down the road, and I see this guy, and, he, and we, we had what they called chu hoi back then. We mm-hmm. meant they give mm-hmm. up. Open arms. Yeah, and so he's chu hoi, and he's got, you know, bandoliers across his chest and stuff. You know, he's in loincloth, and he was part of the 30 that hit our base camp the three two nights before that. And so I was laughing to call him. I was on battalion radio, and I was trying to get a hold of my guys on company, and and I'm on battalion. I'm going, hey, that guy's out there open. I need help out here, you know. So anyways, we pulled over in the mud off the side of the road, and he's sitting in his little saddle on this hill. And so I got down and went up, took the bandolier off and stuff. And he said something. He was talking. He was yelling in the back. I was going, oh, shoot, there's going to be somebody else back there, right? And uh, so I had, I think it was Tuggle, and I said, hey, keep an eye on this guy here, you know. And he, they had him. And so I'm looking up over, and I go up over the hill, and here's this guy laying on the ground. He's got AK-47 beside him like this, and he's laying on the ground. I'm, I'm going, get up, get up, get up. And I was going, and he's, he's going, whatever the guy said was good because I didn't shoot that guy, you know. And so the other guy, he goes, okay, well, you know, he, the poor guy. He stood up. I made, I made him stand up, and his calf was blown off from his knee to his ankle with only his bone, you know, and I was going, oh, no. So he left his, his AK on the, on the ground and stuff, so I went over to him, and, and uh, I I put him on my back because I was going to carry him out to the road on, on 13. And by that time, the, the medics would come out and stuff, and, and my guy, a couple of my guys on tracks and stuff were out too. And so I put him on, the, on my back, and I carried him out and, and threw him in the back of the Jeep, and this other medic, Grabbed him by the hair, stuck a forty-five in the side of his head. I said, whoa, 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 what are you doing, man? He, I just carried him 50 yards <laughs> across the street, I, you know, across the, the mud. He's not going to do anything. Well, you never know. And I'm going, look. And his legs all blown off and stuff. That AK, though, was on full automatic, and he was going to go for it. And the interpreter talked to him, and he says, yeah, he's pointing to the sky. The night that the attack happened uh puff came by and and uh he peppered the whole area and stuff you know it was a beautiful sight you know a big ribbon of red and boom 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 all around the compound and he must have got hit by it or something or either that or one of the cobras or something like that but it, yeah they did damage it's funny the, the interpreter came back and 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 told me he says you know he says you know, i think you're a doctor 
And I go, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, because you helped him. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, okay, you know, whatever the mentality is. That guy was a sergeant. Uh, it was a uh, staff sergeant, I think, in the, in the NBA or something uh-huh. like that. You know, he was he was up there, and the other guy was like a captain or something like that. It was it was, it was, it was weird, you know. But they're little guys and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. Those guys. Were. <laughs> and would would you say that those guys would then turn to be the full like um, help help out or? They were a lot of times where they, they were yeah. reintegrated and in, in depending on what area they were they were, had come from, mm-hmm. and they'd find that out, and then they'd they'd uh, you know blend them back into the the society that yeah. was there. Yeah. I guess I don't know. I never saw them again. You know, so <sighs> yeah, that's that's another thing. There's a lot of similarities, well, not a lot, but there are definite similarities between you know what it was like for us over in Iraq, and and I didn't fight in Afghanistan, but the guys that fight over there you know just the and then in vietnam just mm-hmm. trying to tell who's a good guy and who's a bad guy and yeah. it's yeah. it's one of those things it's uh there's no easy way to do it no there isn't and, and a lot of the villages and stuff were pro vc villages and stuff and we knew that in the daytime was fine at nighttime i don't want to go through there you know we had some some girl um get into our compound and once the gates were closed and stuff they found her inside and she was from the village, which was a pro VC village, and I don't know. They got some intel and stuff from her, and and all that. And the next thing you know, the recon's mounting up, and they're going to take her back to the village. And I go, hey, I'll go. You know, I'll ride a shotgun on 150 off one of the recon tracks. And uh, so we pulled into this village, wishboned it, you know, and make sure. And they kicked her out of the back of this track, threw her out of the bike, and she's yelling all the time. She says, no, no, they'll kill me, they'll kill me, they'll kill me. I'm going, whoa. But the interpreter goes, nah, it should be all right, you know. And I was going, whoa, okay, whatever. At that moment, though, when we did, we pulled into this village and stuff, I saw this, what I thought was a, a head coming up over one of the, the little hooches and stuff that they had. Almost fired, but but didn't. And it ended up being a, a like a palm frond or something, you know, just popping up over the ridge of this, this hooch and stuff. So it was kind of, that was kind of scary. No, yeah, I would think. It's a well, fun mission, though. The, the the insurgents definitely in Iraq. If they found out in Ramadi, if they found out that somebody was working yeah, with the they, coalition, they'd yeah. they'd kill them. Yeah. They'd, they'd skin them yeah. alive. They did that. They'd behead them. It was pretty awful. Yeah. We we the U.S. coalition forces were very careful not to ever indicate that any of the people that were working with the coalition. Right. Yeah. Especially when I first got as as the <coughs> transition happened and the insurgents got were on the defensive more and the local populace realized that we were going to stay and protect them. They got more we they got more verbal about like, hey, no, there's a bad guy down there, and 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 the the momentum shifted towards the local populace just being like, hey, we're good, you're good, those guys are bad, yeah. And there was less fear, and that was really one of the tipping points. Uh, so. You get this early release program, and how's that? You just, boom, they pluck you out of Vietnam, you get a letter? How'd that go down? Um, no, actually, the colonel flew into where I, I was on uh, this other track. It was one of those command tracks that had a little bubble on top. And yeah, stuff yeah, in the it, five, yeah. I think it's called a 577. Whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember. 114s or something like okay. that. I think it was what it was. And uh, colonel's colonel came flying out there in his helicopter and stuff, and, and uh, came into where we were staged, and 
She says, Sergeant Hall, there's a ride out of here. I know like, what you're talking about. <laughs> he goes, no, he doesn't like sticking on the ground. It was a little loach, man. It was a great, great mm-hmm. helicopter ride. And uh, he goes, go. And, I mean, I I got a duffel bag, and I started giving stuff away, my <laughs> camera, my tape recorder, and nothing, you know, and just grab what I could and jumped on this helicopter, and boom, we were up in the air, and you know, I was still trying to do the four-point buckle. I didn't know. I've never <laughs> flown in one of those little ones before, you know, trying to put the buckle on and stuff. And he, he just reached over and went like that and was done. And then we're up in the air, treetop, heading to Daoqiang, and... Uh, yeah, that was it. I mean, went back to base camp, got my stuff out of the locker, caught a ride on a, I don't know, was it a caribou? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Anyways, anyways, got down to down to Tonsonute, down Saigon and stuff. And uh, it was quick. It was quick. Like, I missed the first flight, you know, and uh, I was down showering, shaving, and, and sergeant came up and says, hey, shh. You just met, missed the champagne flight, and it was a nice one, too. And uh, United Airlines, I think it was. And they, so I said, well, sh-, so I had to wait around another day. And uh, then finally we left and got on this this World Airlines. I don't know, it was either Korean or Japanese or something like that. But, uh, yeah, they flew us home. Yeah, it was quick. Now, you you fly right, right back into San Diego? No, we went to... San Francisco. They said, "Yeah, I, I went to Frisco, but they we got de-roasted in, in uh, Oakland or something. I think it was or whatever it was down there. And so they give you all your <clears throat> all your stuff, and you give them all your stuff that that you had. This military wise, and they go, yeah, you can catch a cab out there at the airport.' I said, "Okay, fine." Went out there, took a PSA flight back. So, so now uh, we're talking nineteen seventy. 1970. 1970. Yeah, February. So, and and this is the height of 19th. The, the height, <laughs> the height of the anti-war movement. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Was what was it, that like? Um, not too bad up there, San Diego and stuff. We had some hippie guys out front when I came out, and I wasn't really too worried. Uh, glad to be home and stuff. <laughs> Saw my brothers and stuff. Got spat on, you know, not spit on, but at my feet and you know the wasn't the baby killer stuff and uh-huh. you've been done I, I forget what he said you know but it was like you ignorant ass and this saw my brothers and stuff and took off and that and that, that was really the extent of the uh of the of the war protesters that you saw some jackass at yeah, the airport yeah, that was it was that yeah. were you did you just look at it like you just did just now which is like yeah whatever this guy's yeah. an idiot yeah yeah I mean, what am I going to do? Punch him? Yeah. You well, at that point, punch. I might have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I, it, it just, it, you know, it's just like it irritated me a little bit. But then I get in fear, you know, because my brother saw me and stuff. So brother John and Doug came and picked me up. And then, um, so now you're you're done. So this is like, this is a period of what? Like three days, four days, five days or something like that? Less you go than from, five days. Less yeah. than five days you go from... The jungles of Vietnam. They drop you off and you're back in the world. And then you're back in the world. Yeah. Did they give you? <laughs> did they give you any kind of? No. Yeah. There's the door right there. <laughs> Get a cab. Oh, that's a funny thing too, because because I went through NCO school, right? Uh-huh. So they had track of all the sergeants and stuff that were in Vietnam. And so <clears throat> when we back to Zion, Zion, I think 
they had you had to go through certain bungalows or buildings and stuff and I went through one and he goes he gave me your name and he marked it off he goes oh you're one of them that made it and I go what do you mean he says yeah you're on on the list here you made it okay fine I didn't understand what it was but they were counting how many uh, NCOs from that period uh, uh, made it through yeah but no there wasn't no, there was no debriefing or or you know have a good time or you know this is what you should do or and uh, <laughs> yeah. good job America well yeah. no I, they didn't know yeah they didn't know yeah. you know until later well on. one of the big things that gets pointed out a lot is in World War II when you finish World War II at a minimum, you got on a ship with... And you talked about yeah, it. You yeah. got on a ship with 500 other guys, 1,000 other guys, and you rode with them for six weeks until you got back to America. And during that time, you talked about everything and you kind of got it off your chest and out of your system. Absolutely. And then you got back and it was you, you got that decompression time. We didn't even know what it was called. But putting you you know, from the jungles of Vietnam to Main Street, San Diego. Yeah. yeah. And but the how did you feel hit- about it, though? Um, didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. You know, how was I supposed to feel? You know, I figured that happened to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing is that I had a family to go to. A lot of guys did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Well, we're 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 glad that you had a family and glad yeah, you me too. glad you came on home when you did. Did you um? <clears throat> did you jump right back into college, or did that? Uh, that was a yeah. I kind of blew that away. You know, I take astrology, geometry, and whatever, and you get a classes all mixed up, and that just wasn't for me. <laughs> but I did get out. You know, what are they going to do? Send me back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Oh, so so were you you were still <clears throat> in the army? They outprocessed no. you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, no. They outprocessed no, you. Yeah, but you're you're good for. You know, you're still in reserves or mm-hmm. whatever it is for a couple of years. Yeah. So, so what'd you do? What'd you do when you got back? Um, kind of chilled for a little while, you know. And then I went to work with my dad at the unemployment. Unemployment. I did get unemployment for a year, I think it was, uh, or six months or something like that. And that's another funny story. You know, you, the, the people at the unemployment. You know, ask you, well, what did you do in the military? Or, no, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to build wooden boats. Well, we don't have any, you know, wooden boat builders. But they did in San Diego. But And, well, what did you do in the military? And being a sarcastic little ass I was, I said, well, I killed people. You got any jobs for that? Mm -hmm. You know, I was just being sarcastic. I I didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. But anyways, yeah, I went to work for my dad. And uh, at the uh, employment agency for a while. And then through that employment agency, I got a job uh, at a building material warehouse down in San Diego, Case Products. And I worked there for quite a while, for a little while. But I used to met contractors and stuff, you know, that came in there and they said, hey, you want to work on the weekend? I said, yeah. You know, and before you know it, you know, I was working at a cabinet shop. And then after that, I was building houses, and and then uh, I worked for the gas company uh, in the '80s, uh, SD Genie for about eight years and stuff. And I never saw this little guy grow up or anything. You know, it was kind of like I worked at nights and days and and afternoons. And uh, then I got the job at the. Uh, then I quit that, 
include a lot of things during that period. Um, then I got the job at the Hotel Dell. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What 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 point? How old were you when you had Josh? Uh, I was 32, 33, 32. I got married when I was 32, so it was like 30. I was 33 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I got divorced at, when I was 42. Do you think you bounced around from a lot of jobs because you were looking for something like you did? You weren't quite sure what you wanted to do? Um, the SCG&E, but it was a good job. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I, that, that was an excellent job. It was just Actually, a matter of finding a job. Yeah, that, you know, and people helping you and stuff, you know, and they go, because I, I didn't, I was lost. I could, you know, after, you know, the divorce and stuff, you know, I was just wandering, you know, in my mind and literally wandering. <laughs> and um, then I worked the Thunderbolt races for a long time during the 80s. And a couple of those guys said, hey, you know what, you got to, you know, try to go to the, uh, the the Dell, you know. So I went down there, and they go, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a carpenter. You know, I had been in the past. And, oh, well, yeah, okay. So they hired me for 10 bucks an hour. You know, I said, well, that's better than nothing. <laughs> and it was. It was a good job. It was a good career move, you know. So good family down at the hotel. Yeah. yeah. And you got to be in Coronado. Yeah. Yeah, Which it was like a little, you know, go over the bridge, boom, yeah. your your day's done. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was like a little Disneyland. And then this kid, he's, he came along and and uh, was over there too, diligently doing his homework at three thirty in the afternoon in the shop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to Josh. Yeah, uh oh, <laughs> Josh Hall. And so did you. Where'd you guys actually live? Did you you didn't Spring live Valley. in Coronado? Okay, so you yeah. still you lived in Spring Valley, yeah. but you worked in Coronado, mm-hmm. yeah. and that meant you spent a bunch of time in Coronado. Yeah, yeah. Basically, what had happened? I think I was nine when you guys got divorced. Ten. Ten. So I stayed at my mom's place in Claremont for two more years, uh, and then the middle of eighth grade, I'm like, this isn't a good scene. <laughs> um, so called him up, and he came and got me and that was it i lived the rest of uh, we finished out eighth grade in claremont and then lived in la mesa well spring valley yeah and would go over the bridge together every day and it worked out i played i didn't play three seasons of sports but i played two played soccer for four years baseball for two and then golf for two so by the time practice was over he was off work and we'd go home yeah Uh so it was it was cool it was tough breaking in you know that i think out of my graduating class maybe I want to say up to 30 kids have been in school together since kindergarten. Hmm. And so when you're trying the new kid on the block and, you know, of course I had long blonde hair and was a surfer and wear Hawaiian shirts all the time, you know, it took, <laughs> took about six months to kind of break in and, and make, make friends, but it was great. Um, I wouldn't trade the, anything for going there. It was a great school to go to for four years and a couple, three or four families like really brought me in and made me feel welcome. So it was, it was a good move. So what year did you start surfing? How old were you when you started surfing? Well, really started surfing. I mean, we'd I'd gone to the beach my whole life. We'd mm-hmm. camped at South Carlsbad State Beach every summer. I mean, my grandpa boogied into his 80s, literally. <laughs> like, we'd walk a boogie board down the stairs yeah. and get in the water. So I always grew up with it. Um, I have an older half-brother that was a big-time surfer, but at that time, he wasn't the nurturing, supportive type. <laughs> he was the more, I'm going to take you out and drown you type. So unfortunately, I kind of missed an early window to get started. But um, I'd say I really got into it around 14 end of eighth grade you know we're like all boogie board and whatever and then by ninth grade we got you know got into surfing 
with my friends from the great thing was is even living in spring valley every weekend my dad would drive us because my friends we all grew up in claremont but before high school um one of my best friends moved down to pb and so basically all summer long Mm -hmm. that's where we lived all weekend long that's where we lived and so thankfully to this guy he would drive me from spring valley on a friday afternoon well we'd go home and then drive out and then he would come sunday night pick me up and, and, and just surf and, the entire weekend yeah and just yeah. yeah hang with hang with friends and so yeah i was like 14 senior or freshman year of high school pretty much which is late now i mean yeah yeah most yeah. kids are surfing when they're like three now well now so. their kids are now they're their pro by the time yeah, they're 14 now their parents are pulling them out of school to homeschool and when yeah. they're six years old yeah so and and let's let's hear about i mean how did you start how did you say to yourself you know what i like riding surfboards but i want to start making them i'm i it, it really started with ding repair and, uh, you know, just I wanted to be a surfer. I mean, we were all surfers. We had a huge group. We were called the Felspar Rat Pack, and there was 30 of us every weekend from Mission Bay High, Madison, Claremont, UC. I, you know, I would show up, and we would conglomerate at PB every weekend for, like, four years in a row. It was it was pretty incredible. Um, and uh, I just, I don't know, I had such an affinity for surfing, and in that neighborhood were a lot of, people in the surfboard industry mm-hmm. you know you had um bird huffman had south coast skip and hank had harry surf shop and then joe, joe roper used to have like his first original shop down there in felspar but so these guys were around all the time so it just kind of was like well, well that guy's making a living building boards you know <laughs> although they're complete legends and in, in different ways but I, I that's how it started i would like take boards home and ding repair and um you know you know, hack on my friends' boards and charge them twenty bucks. And <laughs> what about the fact that okay, what years is this? This would be ninety. So I went into high school ninety four, ninety five. I graduated ninety eight. So, so uh, how did you go from being in, into like what a normal nineties surfer type of surfer and type of surfboard and type of attitude to being like okay, you know what, I'm going to actually ride longer boards i'm going to be more of a traditional where, where did that come from um i well to be honest what really got us sparked in a like my group of friends into surfing was endless summer two had just come out like literally i remember sitting in the third row watching it and he was with me and my friend joe and it just was like whoa and just that kind of sparked i think the style of like that's how we want to surf mm-hmm. um i never really I think to this day I've never ridden a proper shortboard. I just, you know, and then what what he could afford to get me too. You know, my first board was a broken in half guy talking on a longboard that got fixed at Island Surf, you know, and yeah. and that's what I rode. And so that that was the vehicle. And, you know, I think I got a couple swap meet scores for 50 bucks. Like a, I remember I had a, a rocket fish. So I did ride a couple smaller boards, but never a proper shortboard. You know, maybe, I, mean, I guess I wasn't that, you know like i wasn't like a big guy but i don't know i just it didn't i like the flow and just the style parts of it and then right after endless summer two um our local hero joel tudor came out with i think his first movie and then that was like okay yeah that's how we want to try to surf and i'm still trying to surf like that. <laughs> isn't everyone <laughs> yeah but yeah so that was kind of the combo and and again i think it just was being able you know manny down an island surf when we were in high school you know hooked us up on a board and that's just how it was. That's how we started. Oh, well, actually, too. So I guess I should backtrack um, right after that. So I was playing baseball, mm-hmm. um, started in majors, which is 11 and 12, and then went into Pony League, and I played two years in high school. Well, 
my baseball coaches at Claremont own Diamond Glassing, mm. Bob Bochi. So, and all the kids on the team were like La Jolla Shore script, you know, rusty rippers, right? They're all riding their shortboards. And so that kind of, I was like, oh, okay. And, and just being able to go to a factory back then, you know, they, they wouldn't let you look in a room. You couldn't ask a question. They would just be like, get the bail, you know, like Grom, like we'll build your board, but don't, you know, like don't go nosing it around, you know? Um, that's how it happened. Uh, we ordered a Bob, uh, through Bob, uh, Roger Beal shaped me like a two plus one high pro nineties, <laughs> perfect nineties long board. And then, um, my next board, that one broke, broke in half. And then the next board, it was pretty classic. The start of my sophomore year, I broke my leg in soccer and my board. Well, broke the board first, then my leg in soccer the next week. So I started the school year out on crutches. Um, that was pretty funny. But uh, the next two boards I got were was a Stu Kenson 90s high pro, you know, uh, long board. And then Joel's movie came out. Uh-huh. And I went, oh, I want a 9-4 round pin single pin. <laughs> and so we went back to Bob. And Bob's like, yeah, yeah, Stu can shape anything. And what's crazy looking back now is when I went to order that board, Stu was like, hey, come in my room. Check this out. You should get one of these. And it was the first 6-6 Karma model that he had uh-huh. shaped for Joel. Right? Yeah. So that, anyway, so that yeah, that's how. But we had that crazy end with, with the Bochies, you know, as a baseball coach, but owner of you know, one of the biggest glass shops, I think, in surfboard history. Yeah. And and it's and Rest you still <laughs> at some point your brain is saying, I just don't want to ride these boards. I wanna I wanna I wanna shape these boards. Yeah. What, I, what what how old were you when you said to yourself, I'm gonna shape a board? I don't know, at sixteen? The the fun, okay, so Do you watch Morning of the Earth or something? No. <laughs> no, not no, I didn't even know about that. It was just it was more like um well, we, we would watch the shortboard videos, like all the lost videos, uh-huh. and the, you know, and that's what we'd watch, like the, the Taylor Steele stuff, like momentum and focus, like that's what we watched. But somehow, like I ended up just being the longboarder in the group. So did my friend Joe. But um, I think it was just I wanted, you know, he was a carpenter. So mm-hmm. I think I kind of have that in my genes. And I really just wanted an, an excuse to be able to keep surfing as long as possible, you know. <laughs> and I thought, well... <laughs> you know, shaping boards might be the way. And, um, the, you know, we, he came down, dropped me off on a Friday or whatever. And, and Skip was out picking up trash. And, and I was like, dad, I really want to, you know, maybe I, maybe I could watch him shape a board. Right. And so he goes, okay, I'll go ask him. And he gets out and I'm like sliding down my dad's truck. Like, oh my gosh. Super <laughs> tell, embarrassed. Tell us, tell us about, because, you know, obviously not everyone that listens to this podcast surfs and, even even some people that surf, well, no, most people that surf. Tell us about Skip Fry. Um, well, yeah, Skip Fry. He is. Um, I mean, he's he's a, such a legend. It's hard to. I mean, original surfer shaper from San Diego. Grew up in Bay Park and went to Hawaii with the Wind and Sea crew back in the day and really became one of the top surfers um, in that era and still is. And he, I mean, I my words aren't going to do him any justice, mm-hmm. but he's sort of the kind of the one of the last guys from the, say the golden era you know in that that mid to late 60s that really designed and surfed and tested and you know and would go back and redesign and retest and uh, of that era that's still around he's still doing it. he's 77 and he's more stoked now he's changing his fins oh i did you know i rode this board with this fin set up and i mean that's the first 10 minutes of any conversation with him not like oh how are the waves he's like no no but i rode the you know he's just to see somebody at 77 is 
stoked as a 14 year old that's that's skip i mean I, again i can't uh i can't do him any justice as far as what he means to not just me but the sport in general i mean he really is our compass for <laughs> yeah it's i'm sitting here as you're sitting here as you're sitting there trying struggling to describe how you would describe skip and what he means in surfing um you know i guess i guess just the word legend like he is he is the the legendary shaper surfer yeah um he's sort of the the pinnacle of what that means and if you say his name everyone just goes oh yeah well that's that's skip fry yeah um and and at some point so 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 your dad you know dave you just said okay well i'll go ask him i don't care i'll go talk to him yeah i told him i said he's just a man you know, and you know, and I I went up and I said, "Excuse me, Mr. Fry," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I asked him. I said, "Hey, can my son watch you shape a board?" And he goes, "Nah, you know, I got I got burnt by somebody or something like that, you know, and and took some of his shapes, and I don't really do that." And but he says, "You know what? I'll watch him in the water and just check him out." And then it went from there. Yeah, it really, was just an organic. Thing so I was eighteen, um, San Diego State. Uh, I went to state on grant money because my mom wasn't around and he didn't really make that much money, you know, at the time. And so um, I get this grant check my my freshman um, fall se- uh, semester, you know. And I'm going, well, wait, okay, I've already got books, school's paid for, it, and I've got that much money left. So I went down, and at that point, you'd walk into Harry's. Donna was at the desk. You talk about what you'd want. And she'd go, okay, go to Mitch's here, get this blank. You'd wait for a week, get the blank, go back. And then you'd hopefully talk to Skip. You know, a lot of people Donna would just deal with. But um, thankfully, uh, Skip came out and he's like, well, what do you want? And I go, well, I know your boards are really different from everybody that in the neighborhood that rides them. You know, you can ride a fry, you probably won't ride other boards. And so I just kind of want an introductory model. You know, what would be a good representation for me to to learn you know want to surf your style of boards and so it was a nine six egg two plus one and anyway so from when i dropped the blank off until the shape came it was about three months and just organically from surfing again his shop was on the street that i grew up surfing so we'd see each other in the water um i donna kind of i you know struck up a, a i mean a relationship with her she kind of took me under her wing as like one of her kids quote unquote and 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 just organically became closer and closer with him to where finally I got the call. He goes, uh, hey, uh, you're up. I'm going to shape your board tomorrow. Why don't you come down and we'll go for a surf um, and then I'll shape your board and you can watch. And I go, all right. (laughs) I was like freaking out. I'm like running across campus, right, to get home and like go home and tell my dad. And so that's, that's what went down. We met at the shop the next day. And he pulled out two of his personal nine six eggs, and we walked around the corner, down the stairs. All my friends were across the street, sitting on their tailgates, like, "What? <laughs> you getting to ride a skips personal?" And then, you know, and and we went out and surfed really fun PB, like for a couple hours, like a really good session. And uh, we went into the room, and I just sat on the toolbox, and it was I don't know, it felt like it was like 10 hours long but it probably was only a couple hours but man i was jacked i was so jacked that driving home i almost fell asleep driving home you know and you'd ne- <laughs> you you hadn't shaped a board at this point we okay so the summer after my senior year i just was like i'm gonna go for it and he let me build a proper size shaping room in the garage 
So I'd worked at, there's a wall in Coronado across from the, the golf course that I spent all summer working with a master uh, bricklayer. And so I made good money and so we put it into a shaping room and literally split the garage in half. I had an eight by 16 by eight, right? Mm. So a proper, even by today's standards, a proper room. And uh, so I had that prior to, you know, I knew the board was coming from Skip. And so that was built. I got to watch that. And I think the very next week I got a blank and went for it, you know, and then of course butchered it. Um, I don't even think that one got glassed, but <laughs> yeah, I actually think we tried to thin it out with a router. Something like that. Imagine how many passes with yeah, a half a inch router, you know, I mean, oh, I didn't know. See, back I, then there was no, I didn't have a planer then. All the old guys are like, piss off Grom. Like, I'm yeah. not telling you what I, how to do that or what tool to use or like figure it out. And there's no YouTube at no, this point nothing. to go and yeah. just watch everyone shape boards. Yeah. So you really were just literally on your own. And, uh, yeah, so we butchered that first blank and then got to watch Skip shape that egg. And then I went back and went, oh, okay, and I had a little more, you know, with the leftover money from the from building that wall, I bought a planer and then mm-hmm. slowly started. He got me a block plane and a sure form, right? So kind of just real slowly put the pieces together, like, okay, I can at least thin this thing out and not, you know. But, um, and then so with, with that was mm-hmm. 98. Uh, fall of 98, spring of 99. And so for like the next two and a half, three years, like every day was surfing with Skip and watching him. Like, that's just what went down. Like I'd just go and hang out when he wouldn't even say anything to me. And I'd just hang out in the corner of the room, you know, and I'd do errands for Donna or I'd watch the shop if they had to go to a lunch meeting or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that was a real, real special time to be able to do that. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> of 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 every of every person that would have wanted to be in that position, what do you think it was that he saw in you that said, "You know what? Oh man, I'm good with this kid." Oh, I don't know. I have, no, I have no idea. Yeah, I I really don't know because there's been dozens of other people that have probably tried to put themselves in that same position, and I don't know. I think part of it was maybe having Donna be like yeah this is a good kid you know he's one of my kids there's another guy ryan levinson that she kind of gave the same title to and so we were around a lot mm-hmm. and i think slowly you know i would you know skip saw who i was and my demeanor and that type of thing and and how stoked i was of course i mean how could you not be but so yeah i, I, I don't know um may i don't know <laughs> look where we're at now it's blowing my mind <laughs> at what point did did he let you take a pass with a planer well, you know what? It, I I I haven't. I didn't. I didn't in his room. Um, but the way just going and watching and talking and having him show me this, I would go home and literally repeat that step. You know. So it was kind of like it wasn't until later on that we started kind of building. We built maybe ten or twelve boards together, where mm-hmm. you know I'll th- thin one out and template it, and he'll finish it, or vice versa. Um, but yeah, those early years, it just was like studying, watching. I don't know if that's just how I grew up. Like that's how I started playing golf because I'd watch golf on the, on the weekends with my grandma all the time. And then I'd go out and hack dirt all over the middle of the street. But that, you know, just like by watching and doing, watching and doing, uh, I don't know. So that's kind of how that came about. And then what was the growth of from you butchering blanks to you selling a blank for, or selling a board that you shaped for to break even? And then to eventually make, you know, yeah. 10 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks. I mean, 
so I, yeah, I shaped the first board I shaped was a, a, a nine five long board, um, and then the second one was a rocket fish, and then that whole crew that I grew up with at the beach, like, oh, you're building boards? Like, well, yeah, I want to. I'll build you one. You know, I'll just charge you half the blank cost. And so if it's a long board, the blanks are a hundred bucks. Charge you fifty bucks, and then thank you know, Roper. Joe Roper had his ding repair down on Marina Boulevard and he would glass them. In fact, that was really cool too. When Skip shaped that board, he goes, okay, you can take it over to Joe's because he would always take it to the glasser, right? So that was really cool. So Joe glassed my first fry and my first board I ever shaped. So that's pretty kind of a cool little story there. But yeah, Joe would do that. And he still does it. He still glasses um, kids like like, like me now building their first, second, third, 10th board Mm -hmm. and he's glassing them still. It's really cool. Yeah. So then, then it just started escalating, and you started actually where someone uh, outside of your crew says, "Hey, I wouldn't mind one of those boards too." And now you can charge them the full price of a blank instead <laughs> yeah. of half of it. Yeah, yeah. I guess kind of. I mean, I, so there was sort of a. Um, I went to Spain for my fourth year of school, right? For a year, well, eleven months, and so I didn't do any shaping, of course, and and hardly any surfing. So there's a number of boards out there. I think I want to say there's about 75 boards that were shaped prior to that. I mean, I was doing one a month, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe two a month most. And then that was what we called the Spring Valley New Era, or excuse me, the, all my, the numbers were SV1, right? Spring Valley, which is classic because here we are in PB, but I'm shaping them in Spring Valley. Anyways, so then when I came back, it was SVNE, like Spring Valley New Era. And that, I was like, yeah, I really want to do this, but I also wanted to finish school um, I got a degree in Spanish lit from San Diego State. While I was studying in Spain, a friend came over and then... Did you have any kind of plans like to what to do anything with that degree? Uh, yeah. Um, so my best friend... So at some point you're going to be a normal person. Yeah, in kind. my head I'm thinking, wow, teachers have 180 days a year off? That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> right? So that kind of was the plan. I went in for international business and they go, look, it's going to take you seven years to get out of here. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be in college seven years. So... I went in with a high level of Spanish that I went right into upper division Spanish there. So I knew I could graduate quicker with a Spanish degree than trying to go, excuse me, uh, international business. So that's, but when I went to Spain, my whole world got turned into the wine business because a friend of mine had graduated. And I'm like, what are you doing over here? He's like, we traveled for a month together. It was mm-hmm. pretty amazing. And uh, um, he goes, well, I'll be a wine importer. And so our Spanish teacher from high school was like, okay, well, his name was Tom. Tom, you put it together and I'll give you guys a little bit of backing and see what happens. And so I came back from my year, the company got formed, he had gotten all the license and literally a month before I graduated, um, two containers of wine landed in San Diego. And it was like, he was like, well, you ready to sell some wine? And we didn't know anything about anything. We just knew that we had wine and we had to go sell it. So I did that for three years and uh, I call it my my MBA in real life, you know, because it was gnarly. Everything I'd gone through by the time I was 23 was like what most people go through corporate wise. I mean, we had corporate dissolutions, you know, $500 an hour lawyers, um, all that stuff. And I had to learn QuickBooks because I had to take care of all the accounting and all the money and write all the checks. And so that's kind of what thrusted me right into like being sort of a bit, I mean, I was a business owner, I was 50% mm-hmm. of the business and it was do this or like fail, you know, but still living at home, right? I'd graduated, but still living at home, not getting paid. So it wasn't like it was going, but it wasn't real. Like the numbers weren't real. We're like selling cases of wine, paying rent, 
we might get out 200 bucks, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so it was a very brutally like difficult time to, to, to be 22, 23 and completely struggling and completely broke mm-hmm. for three years. <laughs> and you're still shaping? Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the shaping room was still in the garage. So again, I would do one a month, maybe two a month surfing, not as much as I used to, because now this, this is like a sink or swim type of deal here uh, with the wine business. So a, a lot of, I mean, we're long hours, you know, and brutal and not getting paid, like, or maybe paid one month and then not paid for two months. And, you know, and then partnership with investor struggles and, you know, where I don't even talk to him anymore. You know, the, the my old business partner, thankfully my friendship with um, our teacher is still super tight. He's mm-hmm. like my best friend mm-hmm. and uh, that survived. But the, the real world experience I got out of that, all the contacts and cold calling, I mean, we went from zero to 185 accounts in a year. I don't know how to, anything about wine yet. You know, I went, I learned a lot quick, but just that daily brutal cold call, cold knock. Hey. And they're like, who are you? You know, all the old guys that have been in it for 30 years, like, who the fuck are you guys? Like, but we, it was unique because we were the importer and distributor. So we kind of had a position of like, like, well, you guys get to go to Spain. Like, yeah, we were in Spain. You know, my partner just went to Chile to get the wine. So it was legit. But we were like these young kids, you know, like pretty, that was, a, it was, that was a gnarly three years. I and mean, I came out of that pretty spun out. And then, and then at the end of that, it just, did it go under? Did it? Basically my partner got married and then he got, he got pregnant and cheated. I, I, well, you know what I mean? <laughs> they got pregnant. Um, and I'm just like, are you, what, how, like I'm living at home, not getting paid. You're like getting ready to have a kid. So what had happened is he got, he went and got a real job working for another importer of produce. And then, so he's like, I want out. I'll let it's yours. I was like, no, no, I don't. I'm like, I want out, dude. Like, you you know? And so we worked it out. Um, he, he moved on. I consolidated, um, a distributor friend of mine, Jerry Hark saved my ass. Let me put my wine in his warehouse so I could get out of a $2,500 a month lease. Props to Jerry. <laughs> still see him around. He's still in the wine business. Um, legend of a human. Uh, and then I remember I was at a, and the whole time I'm surfing for PB Surf Club, I'm doing the coalition contest mm-hmm. and I'm walking, having this last talk with my ex-business partner about, I'm like, look, I want out, man. I'm done. And so we, made, we kind of made an agreement. And I remember I was in the parking lot at Malibu and that's when I decided, I'm like, I'm over this. And I called him like, done. And so Jerry helped me get out of it. Malibu helped made you see the light. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um, and and Jerry worked with me, and we got we got all the wine into his place, and he helped sell it off. And I did the full. I had to you know go back to the lawyer and pay for the dissolution agreement, all that stuff, and walked away. And that was like the end of 2005. So it was only about two and a half years, almost three years. And then after that, I was done. I was burnt i go i'm gonna go back in the restaurant because i work tables mm-hmm. at a uh, place in quigs is which is now mm-hmm. what's it called uh wonderland down yep. there yeah, yeah so i worked there great crew back then and so i went back and i go hey would you guys mind now i have some wine <laughs> industry experience so now it's like yeah yeah come on in and and so they took me right back in and and for six months i, I just did that i just i worked there um and I also worked at the Wine Vault Bistro down on Little India Street because Chris would always taste our wines and give us tasting notes, whether he hated it or liked it, right? And they he had just opened up a, a restaurant. So I went down and helped them almost for about a year and a half 
after I started Josh Hall Surfboards officially mm-hmm. in July of 2006. And after the wine, I sat, I, I called Skip and Don. We had dinner. I go, look, guys, like, you know, you've obviously seen the history of the last three years, whatever, going, I want to build boards. I'm going to go for it. And they both gave me their blessing. They said, whatever we can do to help support you, you, you know, you have our support and go for it. And so that's what kind of put it on full blast. And then, and then, what did that look like? What did full support from Skip and Donna Fry look like? Well, just like they're they were there. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't bombed on the fact that you know. And they they obviously, I, besides those first couple custom boards, Skip had started shaping everything I rode, and then I had access to his quiver, so it his boards shaped how I served. And in my head, I go, well, hmm, that's funny. Not many other people shape boards like this. Might be a good idea to maybe pay attention and start. So the boards I were building although bricks compared to now were in that style and mm-hmm. they knew that. So a lot of the models, it's like, I'm not going to learn one thing and then go, Oh, I'm going to go over here and recreate a wheel. And so I've just tried to take what those initial formative years and with how I surf and other influences and put together what we've got. But it was just, it was good for me to know that they had my back, you know, anything, anything I needed. I mean, support wise or, I mean, Skip and I were still surfing together all the time. He's taken me, you know, he took me to Malibu the first time, Swami's, Cliffs, Santa. Like, he really, it wasn't just the board thing. It was wind, tide, weather, swell direction, interval, this reef, that reef. Because I'd have windows at school. Hey, Skip, I got two hours. And he'd go, oh, do, 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 uh, go here. And he, you know, and, and sure enough, I'd show up at a re- place and get waves. So it was more, more schooly than just the board stuff. What was the escalation looking like in terms of going from where you know you start Josh Hall surfboards to where I mean you know obviously when you start off you you got to sell some of the boards you got to get some of them one or two or three and then eventually the word gets out there and you know how long does it take before you go before you're actually have a full-time job shaping Ooh, boards um well it's 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 pretty it's funny because so when I got back from that Spain trip um, Skip had moved to where he's at now, and his neighbor is Chris Christensen, famous, super famous shaper. And so we became friends. And when I came back, so my senior year, I worked for him, just doing shop rat stuff, sweeping mm-hmm. up, cleaning the shaping room, trash, packing boards, right? Well, when this wine thing came about, there was a, a, a guy, a Jeff McCallum, who's now also a super famous shaper. He came into town, uh, went to San Diego State, and he would he worked at a surf shop on Garnett and he grew up surfing Crystal Pier and so I go hey man like um, would you ever want to work at a surf shop and I kind of knew like he was like into the board thing mm-hmm. and he goes yeah and so I said okay we'll call call this guy and so he kind of took my position at Chris's and he got really into it he was you know Chris let him shape at night in his room and then glass and and do and so he took everything I'm building all these things start to finish and and that lasted up until my fallout with the wine thing started coming. Jeff goes, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm looking for a space. Would you want a room, rent a room from me? And I go, yeah. And so we found a place over off Hancock Street, 2006, July 4th. We both shaped our first boards and that's how it started. So it was kind of a cool, like I got him into Chris, but then he gave me the opportunity to leave Spring Valley, right? I was living in PB at the time and, and that was it. But as far as getting busy, uh, it wasn't until like probably 2010. I mean, I, I worked at, I worked at three or four different restaurants. I actually worked this. I tried to work a summer at the Dell as like a valet greeter at the, at the beach village, 
but it was like eight hour shifts till three in the morning. And then I'd wake up, you know, from not sleeping. But yeah, it was, it was tough. As soon as I think I'd be busy enough, like, oh, I can pay rent and, you know, all my stuff. Yeah, right. I'd go in the hole. <laughs> okay, I got to get some catering. I did catering jobs because it was quick, big money. So it took, it took a lot of pieces. And then um, I went to New York in 2009 for the Surf Film Festival there. And I met my friend Sancho, who was big surfer in the Basque country of, of Spain. Also family owns one of the most massive wineries in Rioja. So we hit it off like right away, you know, speaking Spanish. And he was like, yeah, well, why don't you try to come over? You know, I have some friends that have small shops. Maybe you could come over and, and shape some boards. So that was the uh, fall. I left my the day before the October 20th. My birthday is the 22nd. And I spent six weeks and I traveled found him at his family's winery, did that. He took me up to the Basque country and introduced me a couple people. Um, I built some boards there. I went down to Portugal and built like five or six boards at a factory down there. So it was like, oh, okay, this has potential. Next summer I went back for eight weeks. Summer after that I did 10 weeks. So that that helped. Once, because th that was extra income. The Euro was super strong. So it kind of helped. And I was paying rent at my place here, right? Mm -hmm. But I just... And yeah, so since 2010, it's just been on a slow growth pattern. You know, I didn't come out with any marketing plans or, I mean, the main thing was just try to shape a decent board. Yeah, I was going to say your mar your marketing plan is to make really good boards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was thankful to work with some of the best glass shops too, which helps because mm -hmm. it makes it look pretty. But <laughs> man, I'd give money back on my first thousand. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but yeah, still trying to figure it out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> those, those have the what is it a sentimental value though. yeah yeah I still get hit up hey I got number 38 and uh, you're like oh I'm sorry I know <laughs> this, was, this was his first logo yeah yeah so that so that was a real cool story there it's like it's kelp around a JH with like oh, okay. yeah, yeah. blue water in the background and that was my friend's wife who's an, a watercolor artist and and I was like, she's like, because I first, I don't know, 30 or 40 boards didn't have any logos, right? Because mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like you could just go to Kinko's and have them print up rice paper, however you did it. And she's like, oh, I, I drew this logo. I was thinking about you and your vibe and your energy, right? And she came up with that the first time. And it, you know, bitchin' sits on a board nice. And, and so we ran with that for, I don't know, probably 12, 1300 boards as the first logo. It's more of sense, you know. I've Do you, had, know, you know how many boards you've shaped now? Uh, I'm just about at 4,200, right around that, that number. Yeah. I had, I, I don't have everyone documented, mm -hmm. you know, but I know the numbers that I did in Spring Valley, the ones I did at the first factory with Jeff. Um, and then I moved actually in 2009, I moved to where Skip was at. There's still four or five other shapers in there. And so I remember the numbers, but I don't have it like to the actual board. You know, I know, yeah. I think it's Harbor. I think Harbor has every board ever shaped documented like you can hey yeah. i got this seven eight with this number and they can look it up and it Tell pops it up yeah yeah who shaped it or yeah so but um yeah around 4200 so not that many people i don't know if people think i've shaped more or less i don't know yeah feels like a lot because a lot of what i do is big volume boards you know yeah long boards and yeah big boards but <laughs> you get four of them out of a 12 foot or four short boards. you know it's uh, one of the things where uh, people ask a lot about mentorship right they mm -hmm. say oh what you? and for me I never really had like the mentorship that you get from skip or that you've gotten from skip and that you continue to get from skip that's like the most pure solid well-rounded mentorship 
I, I never got like anyone in the in the SEAL teams that was just giving me all that you know everything and I, I don't say that in a negative way I mean there's plenty of guys that helped me out and I learned a ton but I always had to kind of pick f- from like hey this guy would teach me about this and mm-hmm. then someone else would teach me about something else but I think just the the uh, idea of like how you approached skip who's you know not exactly a guy that that is looking to bring on a bunch of people to mentor I mean I'd say anything but that really yeah um, and yet you ended up in a position where you get to absorb as much knowledge as you can possibly get from them and you know that's a endless you know infinite oh, amount of yeah. information <laughs> but um, actually I think it was Joel I think Joel was telling me that he could be like he'd like look at the weather and he'd be like oh you need to go here at 2:30 in the afternoon and it's gonna be good for about 48 minutes like, like that kind of yeah. thing. He yeah. said it's the, his knowledge of the water, the wind, the tides. Exactly. And that's so I'd be at state coming down with my board, my car. Hey, Skip, where, you know, I've got two hours where, you know, I'll go here. And sure enough, you know, um, and then just surfing with them. Man, we'd go down and do the cliffs runs that those are like some of the most amazing sessions ever. You know, we've had a couple of birthday sessions, my birthday in October with decent sized south swells on our you know 10 6 and 11 foot boards going eight down and three up and it's uh, amazing yeah it's hard it's you don't see people you don't really see many people doing that much anymore you Mm -hmm. know it's just yeah i hope skip gets back down there this winter though yeah yeah and i think just again as like almost uh advice is like what the the approach you took was hey be humble be persistent um, you know, show up, absorb, don't run your mouth, you know, mm-hmm. you weren't like, Hey, can you be my mentor? Hey, can you be my mentor? Hey, can you be my, it's like, yeah. you know, Hey, can, do you mind if I just sit over here and just watch yeah. like, and you prove that over time? Yeah. Hey, and, and then he's probably watching you surf and he's watching you. I'm sure you were bringing him boards and going, Hey, what do you think of this? And he's yeah. probably having a chuckle at some of them. And then oh, yeah. at least being able to say, Hey, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's going to get you, yeah, get you where you want to be, you know, fin templates or where to put the fins and all that stuff. I mean, I still get nervous to ask him for stuff. I mean, <laughs> we're like tight and it's still, I go, hey, Skip, um, what do you, what do you think about, you know? And, and that's the other thing. He's so giving, he's yeah. like, he, he'll give it all away. You know yeah. what I mean? He really is this most humble giving person. When, uh, when I was, uh, let's see, I guess it was maybe 10, you know, maybe a little bit longer that years ago, but, um, you know, my son surfs and he's, he's, he loves surfing and he's been surfing since he was a little kid. Oh, but, I remember. I got a story. Yeah. Okay. A couple. <laughs> well, we, we <laughs> would see occasionally we'd see Skip yeah. and, um, and you know, I'd tell like, Hey, that's Skip Fry over there. That's he, and he'd, you know, my son would kind of like paddle over, look at him, you know, <laughs> and he'd be on at this time. He used to ride this red foamy. Yep. Uh, it was, I forget, but it was, it was a, it was a, like as nice of a foamy as you could get, but you know, he was eight years old and, yeah. and I would take him out on big days. I mean, he would surf every swell, but, um, but then, you know, I was still in the Navy okay. and you know, he really wanted to skip mm. and he wanted to skip bad. And you know, I, was a dad Mm -hmm. um, in the Navy with no money and uh, how am I gonna get my son a skip because they cost a lot of money and eventually I got (laughs) I got a guy up in like Dana Point and I found it on Craigslist and he had the most absolutely destroyed skip that you've (laughs) ever seen like an Mm 8-0 winter egg and 
it was 300 bucks so you know what kind of condition it was in for 300 bucks it was in awful condition I drove up there in my van <laughs> I paid this guy 300 bucks and that was uh, that was Santa Claus brought Santa Claus brought skip fry to cool. uh, my son yeah. and we still have that board and he's oh, like cool. I'm never getting rid of this board <laughs> yeah but, yeah oh my gosh pretty sweet that's pretty funny sweet. your your story about your son at I'll never forget it was North garbage and surfed there a lot yeah. you know growing up and uh, it was a decent sized day and I you know you know caught a wave and I'm going through and 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 I see you and your kid like just in like the danger zone and, and this this is before it got really crowded with you know kind of the beginner surfers this is still crew back then holding yeah. it down and and I'm like hey man you're gonna get your kid hurt out here and like this like like 55 barrel drum like sits up and just looks at me and I go oh and I was like I know that look I'm like oh sorry all right and then I'm like man this guy's just gonna get his and it was it was Thor I mean yeah. it was that winter yeah and I'm like man and then and then the next winter taking off in the front of your house and here it's just see him just getting shoved in in front of me I'm like that guy again God. and then I'm like oh sorry yeah. you know yeah I remember those I was, yeah. I was cracking up once we became once you know we reconnected and I was like that was that guy man I was like yeah. totally ha- hassling that's so cool like there was no there was definitely people hurt. yeah because oh. he, he was so young and I'd have him out on man days yeah you know like yeah, straight yeah. man days yeah. where there's no there's no kids out you no, know I know it's and just like yelling at you you're gonna there. hurt your kid man <laughs> i'd always be chuckling hey maybe we'll see <laughs> <laughs> oh man i just and now like looking back it's just that was classic yeah but but good um, times though your kids turned into a good good boy good kid yeah he's um he surfs a lot i know that Punk. i remember doing that <laughs> <laughs> uh so what's the uh what's you know where are you guys at right now where what's kind of what's the status of josh hall surfboards Whoa. at this moment okay so let's go from 2010 um spent a big summer over in the bass country just surfing and shaping and 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 then coming back i'd moved into the complex where skip was at uh bob mitson's in there and michael miller and jim ellington and at the time and um all legend guys Mm -hmm. and uh i would just i would just shape 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 okay i'm going on another trip shape 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 going on another trip um and just slowly building you know i got a website Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on my third website now. Um, and so that helped people could at least see models. And I had one guy, a Japanese guy at that time selling, uh, mostly customs. He, he lived here, but he'd sell them and ship them. And then, um, we parted ways. It's been six years ago. And cause I, I seeing Chris's model, Chris had a great distributorship in Japan. I was like, I want that man. Cause it's like consistent boards every month, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, who knows what, you know numbers he was doing but i was like that's how you make it you know you got to get a distributor so mm-hmm. we parted ways i went to japan uh for the green room festival which is like a music art surf themed festival and had a couple contacts here in california that were japanese surfers and so they sort of fished around like hey you know josh hall's coming to japan and wants to uh, get a distributor to start you know doing some real business not just hey i got 10 custom orders this month sweet oh i don't have anything now for the next two weeks like mm-hmm. something consistent and that's why i uh, found holy smoke who's my distributor now siyoshi and we're just september was six years so and that's been great not a ton of boards but consistent mm-hmm. and so that once that happened then it was like okay breather let's get caught up on some debt here so i can breathe and then and then slowly go you know, 
a shop in New York started selling my boards quite a bit. Um, and then just doing that, then I'd go to Europe each summer and bang out, you know, 40, 50 boards. And so I kind of had to go all over to get kind of a consistent base. But um, was uh, there a tipping point where your boards sort of elevated to the status that they are now where they went from like, hey, a surfboard to like, oh, that's a Josh Hall? Um, maybe, maybe other people could say that better than, than me. I just still try to shape a better board than I did yesterday. Um, and I don't, I mean, again, I've been real fortunate to work with the best glass shops in San Diego, which helps. Um, and thankfully they worked with me and, uh, um, that kind of helped. And I think with the consistency, I think the people seeing the consistency like whoa josh is doing this in japan he's doing that and maybe that's helped create and going to, i used to go to new york twice a year for um the fish fry event in may and then i go back in september for the film festival so i think just the moving around and and maybe that helped create um mm -hmm. sort of that like whoa well those boards are in new york or i don't know i think somebody else might be able to well i mean the, the other obvious huge thing is you're like you're just quite frankly known as skip fry's protege and you, that's what people think like oh maybe i can't get a skip fry because i don't have that much money or i don't have that much time or i just mm -hmm. can't make it happen but man i can get a josh hall and that's a huge part of it too i, I mean obviously right yeah yeah that's i i guess i should say that like that's like the first thing yeah right i yeah. mean that's like the without that goes without saying and, and well, just his it, support. It, it, it you know? didn't go without saying for I mean you can't just show up, oh yeah, I'm gonna shape boards like like Skip Fry does. You know, you can't that just doesn't that that's not gonna work. Yeah. You gotta you gotta earn that and yeah. you know, just because the board oh it looks like it might be like it. No, it's gotta it's gotta it's gotta have a little bit more depth than that. And yeah. so I think at some point And surfing. I mean yeah. I surf. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That's, yeah. That's true. <laughs> Skip told me in the beginning, he goes, Look, if you want to do this as a career or a hobby, like if you want to surf, just worry about shape and don't try to do everything yourself. And there's craftsmen out there that do it and I hats off to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I've built five or six boards, maybe start to finish in my whole time building boards. Um so the guys that do that, I mean, that's hard work. I mean, you might be able to do four or six boards a week like that if you're laminating, thinning, sanding, you know, all that polishing. I mean, that's tough. So I guess I, I just wanted to surf and then build boards. Yeah, and you got to have all those skill sets because none of those things are easy. No. And I tell you what, well, we'll get to where the position I'm at now, but there is a se severe lack of uh, talent um, in the pool right now. Mm -hmm. Um, most of the, my crew now that, um, is working for me, they've been building boards longer than I've been alive. Mm -hmm. And if one of them goes down, like we're up shit Creek. And so, and it's really, and that's something that's changed with, with, like you said earlier with YouTube and the internet, like a kid that wants to shape a board now can go, da -da -da -da. Oh, I can buy a, a package. Oh, sweet. I don't even have to think about it. And they can go online and watch this guy shape or watch that guy shape. So now it's not where sort of, you know, you had to pay dues back mm -hmm. like when I wanted to learn, like you had, again, packing boards and sweeping up the shaping room and then maybe a little hot coat here and then you might try to sand here. But it was like baby steps, you know, because it was um, having to learn from the ground up. And now the big shift is everybody just goes straight to the top. They don't want to mess with resin or sand boards and get fiberglass in their pores. And, you know, it's it's a... And it's so hard. And that's the one thing people, well, what makes a quality board? It's like everything makes mm -hmm. a quality board. And, you know, the sander's got to resand it to my shape based on how good his hot coat was set up and how clean the fin cut. I mean, so to, 
I, I don't take it for granted because I get around enough to see other boards that are mm-hmm. out there. But then when I come back to our shop, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see the difference in quality. And it's, <laughs> and it's, it's funny. It's only been three and a half years now with the shop, which well, I'll get to that story. But um, what we're, what the crew, what we try to like fix now are like minute mm-hmm. little things compared to three years ago when we started. And, and, and again, you know, it takes adjustment to the room you're in. It takes the, you know, the light, whatever. It takes time to gel and um, the team's going pretty good. Um, yeah. And so right now it's... Yeah, so three and a half years ago, again, Jeff McCallum, he left that one factory in um, uh, back in 2009. And then that's when I went and shaped in a, in a garage in that same complex that Skip's in. Um, he goes, hey, man. And he had this shop for five years. Hey, I'm going to get out of this. And, you know, the owner or whatever, I, you know, something had gone down and end of his lease. He goes, I'm going to go try and buy a building. So would you enter? Would you want to maybe take this over? And I was like, Fuck, OK, well, and my business partner, Dave, he and I had been talking for maybe six or seven years and how he he's obsessed with surfing. But he comes from like the finance world, you know. And I've known him for 20 years, PB Surf Club member, surfing the point, bird rock and all that stuff. And we'd surf shores and we'd always talk about business, but I didn't, we didn't know how he would fit like inside Josh Hall surfboards. And then I told him this opportunity came up maybe to take over a a small glass shop just down the street from where I was at. And he goes, huh? So he started thinking, he comes back the next day. He's like, okay, let's do this. Let's start a new company. We're 50, 50, 50 liability, everything, investment, you know, and I go profit, all that stuff. He go, I go, sure. But here's how it's going to be set up. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, which is traveling around, surfing and shaping. I will make it so that you guys have foam every week. And he goes, okay. And so he's run the shop. He's a, he's actually, uh, he's involved in, um, he does all the hot coating on the decks and the resin loops and he pays the guys, he orders stuff. He basically, he runs it. I just make sure that there's foam there organized, hopefully by Tuesday at noon every week. Cause that's when we start start um batches but uh so that so jeff had given me a year to kind of like suss it out because there's no i can't just go hire somebody to laminate Mm -hmm. color tint jobs you know i can't go so we started putting the word out started with my sander wade who was working at diamond glassing and who's also a fry guy and so we've always gotten along and uh he goes well i know of one so he kind of put us onto a laminator and then um i knew a guy that could sand and also do fins and um, and then we had a, a polisher that I had worked with back when I worked with Chris in like 03, Alfredo who's still around. And so we just kind of put it together. And and it's funny looking back now is we'll do 15 packs and we could barely do six back then. Like six was a big week. Four, I think we did four packs the first <clears throat> couple months. So, um, and then in that time, you know, diamond glassing shut down mm-hmm. and we um, picked up uh, the glosser polisher there and also the um, fin laminator guy, uh, John, that puts the fins on. So it's really become this like real tight crew. And again, legends beyond me. I mean, these guys have been building boards for 40 plus years. I just happen to be the kid that's giving them foam, you know? So really super thankful. And Dave runs a super tight ship. You know, there's not, there's no money in glassing. So if we can squeak out 20 bucks a board, that's what we're doing. (laughs) So we're trying to change it though, but slowly. Everybody needs to do it together, right? Every shape or every glass shop needs to work together and hey, like, eight people touch that thing and they're making 10 bucks an hour. Come on, you know? So we're trying to, trying to elevate and, you know, everybody kind of talks and, oh yeah, well my wholesale on this board's this now. Oh, okay. You know? 
Um, it's tough. It's right now. There's there's a group of us taking you know quality and prices mm-hmm. so everybody can actually make a living or hope to mm-hmm. up, and then you know there's still guys that they give their work away, and I'm like, ah, what do you mm-hmm. charge more? You're worth more. You're you built boards for you know this guy, this guy, and for 35 years. Like, come on, don't be. Because they're scared. They think, oh, if I up my price, I'm not I'm not going to have any orders. Mm-hmm. But you got to kind of trust in it. And, yeah. Like, we came out swinging. Like, I remember when we started in 06, it's like, no, this is my minimum. Here it is. And it's just slowly gone up from there, you know. But, well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's the classic. Um, I mean, you're doing something in America. You're building something in America. You're building the highest quality thing that you can build. With what we've, yeah, with what we can, yeah. with what we're allowed to, you yeah. know, chemical wise and stuff, it's getting pretty tight in California. You know? Yeah, but you know, we've got all the permits and we're doing it right. So, and all that stuff costs money, yeah. a lot of money. Yep. And that's that's part of what that's part of the American dream. It's what you fought for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's what you fought for, Dave. To, to, for us to have these opportunities to go out there and and live in this country and proud of this guy. Yeah, no, yeah, I owe to this awesome. guy for dragging my ass to the beach every weekend. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, today I think we're we uh, we're moving into the suite next to us. Um, I need a bigger shaping room and a little. I've been building some stock boards and putting them on the website, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's actually proved to be nice because it's like, oh, you've sold a board and you didn't. You were surfing, you yeah. know. So that's been cool. So we're gonna kind of have a nice, you know, wall front where we can at least display the boards properly and and take good pictures and that way guys are more informed and such try to work on the blog i haven't blogged in a long time but i used to be super into it yeah well now you're too busy surfing and shaping (laughs) yeah but (laughs) that was the point (laughs) well listen we've been at it for a while and um i don't want to i don't want to keep you guys up here much longer i think our air conditioning I may have failed to turn it on. It's getting warm. <laughs> yeah, it's probably eighty degrees out, and I'm yeah, in a long black suit. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm awesome. Comfortable, but um, <laughs> all good. I just, you know, so it's joshhallsurfboards.com is mm-hmm. where is where they can find you yep. on Instagram. You're Same thing, Josh, Josh Hall, Hall surfboards. surfboards on Facebook. You're Josh Hall surfboards. Yep. Do you have Twitter? I don't. No, no, so, I barely have enough time to keep up with those three things, let alone. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and uh, you know, we were talking earlier. I'm hoping to get some. I want to put some Josh Hall custom T-shirts on the Jocko store and get them out there. So maybe we can hook rad. something like that. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people would be stoked to support an American craftsman. Yeah, on the day to day, even if they live in Iowa where they don't surf. But they work hard, like you know, like good Americans do. But um, do you guys got any? You got any closing thoughts, Dave? We got to talk about archery. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. You're, My newest obsession. Yeah, you're obsessed with archery. Oh geez, Louise. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, thanks to this guy. So his brother was an elk, or is an elk hunter, used to be, and I got a little bow when I was ten, a little compound bow and a 3D target, and I go blast arrows into that thing, and and then they kind of hadn't talked in a long time, and through I guess it was listening to, to Joe Rogan's podcast mm-hmm. and then uh, who else and I had some other friends and well so my fiance Tori's she's grown up shooting bows and guns really? and both her sisters uh. and of course her dad so he's like um, well you know my uh, my friend Bob owns performance archery oh yeah and I was like wait that's the one from from Joe's podcast and mm-hmm. I was like 
okay, so he just made the introduction and went up there and, and Bob's a surfer. Yeah. So I just like, well, how, how cool is this, you know? And, and uh, went up and, and kind of started to geek out online. There's a lot of info out yeah, there. there is. John Dudley, yeah, the yeah, stuff yeah. he puts out yeah. is insane. And so I kind of was geeking out and, and uh, went up and Bob just, he set me up. Yeah. And man, I've been shooting arrows every day since. It's yeah. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have Man. to get after that uh, range, which I haven't been to, the one up by Balboa. Balboa Park. Yeah, it's we'll it's right underneath the Cabrillo Bridge. Yeah. I mean, you drive by it every day, you wouldn't even know it's there. <sighs> yeah, so we'll go up and hit that. Yeah, man. We and should. It'll be fun. And, and I got some other trips planned where you can hopefully uh, go and, as they say, get after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll cool, do man. It. That'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, but it, anything else? No, not really. I, you know, enjoy this, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> pretty much. No, I did. Yeah. You did good, uh, Dad. No. Uh, great to hear you and it's it's an honor to have you on and and well, I'm, I'm telling you glad people, I met you guys. People will learn a ton from from what you said and from your experiences and what it looked like from your perspective. Uh it's it's awesome. It's an, it's an honor to have here mm-hmm. you here. Just the truth. <laughs> yeah, and then I mean, Josh, just to see you know what you've taken from your dad and how you've turned that into a business, and you found your way. You know, different people are out there, and they're and they're doing different things, and and you know, I appreciate your service, yeah. and uh, I appreciate you sharing the Stoke worldwide. Yeah. yeah, man, slide the glide. Oh, I just want to say, I, I I was real fortunate. Besides him and Skip, I've I've had a lot of good mentor, life coach people in my life. So that's been a big big deal. I've I've have friends that don't have that and now that we're getting to close to 40 you can see it you know and so i just shout out to those people you know <laughs> i've had a lot more a lot of help extracurricularly to get through it all and here we are right on and, and i'll tell you what for everyone you can see i mean josh is a great example and you know like i was talking about earlier if you're in a position where you can reach down and you can give somebody a hand if you can give someone some help and you can say hey kid come this way or hey kid go that way you know you can have a huge impact a huge impact on their life and getting them pointed in the right direction. Yeah, that's a that's it's kind of too bad people keep that inside them and don't share it. You know the, their experience or their skills. Mm-hmm. You know, but you got you got to share it. Yeah, you got to listen. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's my that's, grandpa. He's like, I don't care if you disagree. You got to listen to somebody because yeah. they might have something that you don't, yep. or maybe they put it in a way you didn't think of. Well, so you can grow from that. I, I guess to your point, whereas I just said, hey, if you're out there and you're in a more senior position, reach down and help people out. And if you're one of the young bucks out there, then like Josh just said, open your ears and have a listen because people got some good information for you and they can point you in the right direction so you don't have to learn the lessons the hard way. There you go. Yep. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Thank, Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate and uh, we'll see you in the water. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At this point, our guests, Dave and Josh Hall, have exited the building. And awesome to talk to them. And wrapping it up there, you know, talking about sharing what you know with other people. And I think it's a good opportunity for you, Echo Charles, to share you know, with us. What I know? Yes, what you know. All right, I know this. When we start jujitsu, I know what kind of gear we're going to get. <laughs> so, Check. okay, we'll, uh, we won't dilly-dally. How about that? I'm, I'm not pro-dilly-dally. You know, so. you know what? 
uh, I'm not going to make that leap quite yet. How about this? I'll try not to dilly-dally. Okay. <laughs> but you start talking about jujitsu, all these things. It's very dilly-dally prone. prone, prone. Scenarios. Scenarios, subject yeah. matter. Yes. Anyway, people starting jujitsu, people already in jujitsu, people doing jujitsu for 15 years. Here's the gi you get. Origin. Why? Not only is it made for jujitsu, it's made in the USA. All of them. Boom. Best gis by far. Many different selections. Go to originmain.com. They got some new stuff out too, by the way. Denim. Coming. Coming. It's not out yet. Well, you know. Well, by the time whoever you are in the world listening to this could be could be out. Could yeah. be fully out. I saw the picture on online, so to as me far as you're in my head it's out. It's, it's just a matter of time before it's on on me, my body habitus. Just learn that Did word. Did you just anyway. say body habitus? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I misused it slightly, but I'm, I, I'm practicing. Going with anyway, it. also, they got t-shirts and hoodies. <laughs> rash guards. Rash guards, yes, for the no-gi jiu-jitsu. Um, or, you know, when you're not doing jiu-jitsu, when you're resting on rest days that are kind of cold, joggers, sweatsuit. When people ask, can I do workout and do jiu-jitsu on the same day? Yeah. This is a complete yes. Yes, you can. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. I think you can do jujitsu every day. And if you can't do jujitsu every day because you're physically impaired from doing it because the impact of the jujitsu itself, yeah. you're you're not training jujitsu correctly. Yeah. What? Too hard is what you're, you're going saying. too hard, you're using too much strength, you're using too much muscles. Yeah. If you can't train jujitsu every day, you're going too hard. I'm not saying you might not be sore. Right. Because you pr- probably will be. You may be, I should say. If I do a bunch of hard rounds, mm-hmm. the next day um, I can feel it, right? But I'm not yeah. sore like I can't work out. Yeah. I'm sore like, oh, I'm definitely trained hard yesterday. Right, a right. good way. Yeah. If you're training to the point so hard, so psycho, that you can't train, that means you're, you're going too hard, you're using too much uh, strength, so you should relax. Yes. I agree. Well... Unless you're training with you, which you, since you can never train with yourself, Mm -hmm. you don't know this, but speaking from experience, so I train, (laughs) I haven't trained hard in really a long time, Mm -hmm. train with you, and you know what, I wouldn't even say we were really going hard. No, I I definitely wasn't going hard. Yeah, yeah. At all. Well, you know, whatever, there there were times where I sensed a a, a sense of urgency Mm -hmm. a few times. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my neck hurt. (laughs) My neck hurt real bad, but Did it was really? like right up until the th- it, the threshold of not being able to like work out. That's oh, okay. what it is. So that's so, fine. Yeah, it was You're just it was soreness. It wasn't. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't injured. I was hurting. And this is just from resisting chokes. Resisting the chokes. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what it was. And I knew we too. Were trying to resist the chokes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sure. God. Nonetheless. That's I ego. was sore. That's an ego-driven statement. No, I, just I was. I was yeah. w- no, no, no. Oh, you. Was, yes. Yeah, that was a little ego creeping out. Yeah, like, yeah. I want you to know that I choked you. Yeah. You know, that's just well, ego. I should have been like, yeah, well, you know, you did a good job. Yeah, yeah. You showed, which is what I normally you showed some heart out hey, there. Hey, you did a good job. You know? Yeah. Resisted you felt tight. The cho- <laughs> felt tight. Felt good. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Anyway, nonetheless, yes, work out and do jujitsu. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. Here's the thing, though. People's training philosophies differ. They differ. Yeah, true. So, like, some people, their training philosophy, hey, get the most out of your training. Good point. You know, but these are typically, and I tried to kind of compartmentalize or kind of break it down to myself, right? Where, in my opinion, 
and this is just from my my personal view like i shouldn't like yeah i shouldn't be like super sore or i shouldn't be like unhappy to no. train jujitsu you know true i shouldn't be like oh. from jujitsu from jujitsu yeah yeah do you when you jack steel do you get sore to the point where you're like oh like i mean i imagine if you do chest day yes then you're not going to be fired up to do chest day the next day correct right so that's that's okay well yeah but that's it won't, different but though. a hard chest day is not going to interfere with your jujitsu day no. ever no there are times like let's say i have done a bunch of travel and hadn't done a lot of squatting yeah. and then i go Squats. Sure, heavy. My, sometimes my legs, I'll get the doms. Sure, and it won't, it won't stop my jujitsu training. However, it is a noticeable factor yeah, yeah. that I have to contend with. I would agree with that. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, but the opposite shouldn't happen, which is I trained jujitsu, and now I feel like I can't work out because I'm so sore yeah. in this particular body part yes. can you get your elbow straightened out a little extra yes you can does yeah. that interfere sometimes yes it does yeah and those are that's like an anomaly that's not a not, not a planned part of training yeah. you know to get your elbow straightened out and kind of slightly beyond micro injury yeah. situation or and this is only if that's the plan so if you're like hey i'm gonna t- train jiu-jitsu monday no jiu-jitsu tuesday i'm gonna lift tuesday Instead, you know, like some people, they have that plan, mm. you know, where you're not going to do a two-day scenario. Then, yeah, don't train. Don't train twice a day or twice uh, in a row. I don't agree. Yeah. No, train. I dig it. But you should never be, and what I was thinking of, you should, it should never be like this hard, like, grind to the point where you're unhappy. You know, like no one, no one should be you unhappy training. never. Occasionally, right, right. yes, you should. You should be like, you know what? I don't feel like doing this. I'm doing it anyways. Right. Yeah. So that's the, fine. Yeah. So There's nothing the, wrong with that. Yeah. Every time you feel like a maybe I don't want to train today doesn't mean you get to not train. Right. No, so, you train anyways. Well, Especially in jujitsu, because in jujitsu, if you're like every time you don't necessarily feel 100 percent like training, then you're not going to train when you should be training. Yeah. Most of the time, you're going to get something out of it. If you maybe instead of doing 12 six minute rounds. You say, you know what, I'm going to do some movement, I'm going to get four rounds in, maybe do that instead. Because you're feeling, because you do have to, one thing I am aware of is if you're tired, your percentage of getting injured goes up. If you don't want to be in there, your percentage of getting injured goes up because you're being lazy and weak and and those are the type of situations you you get hurt in right so that, when you're that, not paying attention yeah and that's exactly what i was thinking that whole thing where where you know i was kind of going in circles with the thing where it's like you should never like be unhappy or not want to train you know kind of scenario but i and then i kind of was like wait but there are those times where it's like that's kind of part of jujitsu like yeah. the adversity element yes. is part of it yes and but here's the thing <laughs> when you train that adversity element you're like you kind of you want to do that it's like in it's like invited adversity kind of thing Check. you know just like how you just said where it's like hey if you're i don't know so or whatever situation and you don't want to go 10 12 rounds mm-hmm. so just get some movement and go four rounds boom you just went to that voluntary you know place into your in your jujitsu see what i'm saying so it should unless then on top of that it depends on who you are Wait, I was what do you mean thinking, voluntary place like, okay so if you're like hey like okay d- here's a different uh, scenario then if you're a competitor and mm-hmm. you're like this is my my goal is to be a competitor mm-hmm. 
Now, that's a whole different scenario where, especially if you have a coach and training True. partners and all this other stuff, oh, there's going to be days where you hate it. Like you True. literally and do you not. Gotta get some anyway. You literally would choose to not be there. Literally, like, I'm uh-huh. not going to be here today. Mm-hmm. But then you have these external elements, including your goal, mm-hmm. your coaches, training partners, like yeah. all these things who have the same goals or whatever. So there's kind of like a bigger picture there. So you have to endure that. Like, hey, I don't want to be here. Okay. I don't like jujitsu. You ever heard? You ever felt that before? No, like, I don't even like jujitsu right now. Like, why am I doing this? No, occasionally I'll joke about it. Yeah, but I don't actually feel it. When I was competing and I had like a competition like goal, like I would feel that sometimes. Yeah, like I'm, this is dumb. Like, why? Why am I even doing do this? Yeah, like a little baby. Anyway, it's different. The scenario is different. Anyway, nonetheless, back to the gi. Speaking of scenarios, I thought this is a no dilly dally scenario. Yeah, well, you know, because that was just a dally we, we, right there. <laughs> We got off on a little tangent. That was like 13 minutes. Nonetheless, back to the gi. You get the origin gi. You get origin rash guards. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. No question. No question. Also supplements. So when you are sore, mm-hmm. see, you don't have to be that sore. Be less You sore. can be less sore, yes. I, I know this firsthand. Joint firsthand. warfare. Joint warfare and krill oil. Krill Take oil. them both. That's, the, that's the, 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 the double. The double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to be that sore. Discipline. You can take that. Maybe if you're not feeling, I will vouch for this. Yes. On a day where you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe I only do three rounds, but I'm going to make myself go in there. By the way, I'm going to drink three scoops of discipline before I go. Yes. How many rounds do you end up doing? Nine. <laughs> yeah. So I will vouch for that. That is a factual thing that will happen. Yeah. You don't feel like it. I will mix up. Um, you know, I'll mix up a lick. Ah, you know, I don't really feel like going, but I'm just going to go because I have to because that's the discipline. So then I mix up three scoops of discipline yeah. 20 minutes before I leave my house. Yeah. I'm drinking on the way, kind of drink it, get here. And all of a sudden I get out on the mat. Kicks in. Second round, it kicks in. And I'm like, no, get another round. Get another round. Get another round. Yeah. So uh, coincidentally, mm. the other day when we trained, mm-hmm. we haven't trained in a long time. I've been out. Yep. Yep. We trained. That wasn't the plan. The plan was not to train. Oh. It was just to record, for me anyway. It, it's not like I planned not to train. I, d- I didn't plan to train. I was going to record, yeah. boom, go home. That's the, that's the routine. That's the scenario. But I did take, strangely enough, two scoops of discipline before I came <laughs> in. And I'm not joking. I totally did. And, so, then, and then you couldn't resist. And I was like, are you going to train or what? But and you I were couldn't. Like, yeah, because <laughs> the thing is, all like you know the, the post-recording plans, they're all still there, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, hey, let's train. It's like noon at that time. Yeah. So other people are here, you know, there's the buzz, you know, the buzz of training yeah. in the air that was going on, the two scoops, you know, the buzz of that is going, and you're like, hey, let's train. I don't have any clothes to train, by the yeah, way. So you know what I do? I go downstairs, buy a towel, yeah. first shower after, bought one. Uh, Borrowed shorts. I went to buy shorts, yeah. but there was no none in my size for sale. Um and I just used the shirt that I recorded they didn't with. Have skinny knees, shorts. Well, uh, yeah, they did actually, because I went and saw Noah Oliver was there, who's a smaller guy than me. So he, yeah. obviously, his shorts are smaller. It's the only ones available. I wore his shorts, and yeah. you know, he's one of these trendy guys. Yeah. So yeah. they're kind of shorter shorts oh. and striped, and maybe like half a size too small or whatever. Yeah. Boom. Whatever. No factor. I was really I unintimidated. By your shorts and that skinny knees. Yeah, my whole whole thing. Anyway, (laughs) the point is when you take the two scoops of discipline, yes, it does push you into those 
either more rounds or just rounds when you didn't even plan on doing rounds like in my scenario yeah um hey there's also we just made uh discipline go it's a it's a go pill it's got discipline sometimes you don't have time to drink the entire uh, discipline you have time to mix it you got to get a little expedient hit a little, on the go. a little hitter on the go, you go. so you can just pop some of the discipline go pills little little nootropic action a little bit of caffeine get your get the, get that little bit going get you a little bit going yeah so that's that that's out now too and, and then after you do the jujitsu then yeah. what well you, you gotta to, recover yeah, you gotta right recover. boom milk milk train get right on it milk train additional protein along mm. with your Protein steak. that you eat with your food, exactly right. The steak and boom, you're good to go. Milk can be used as, or it should be used as a dessert. I'm just gonna say it. There you go. It can be used to a should. dessert. It can should. be used. I'm as imposing a dessert. my whole thing on on, on <laughs> no. but, the, but the thing is, what you're failing to remember is it can also be used to replace whatever you are going to eat. Yeah. Right. Oh, like a meal replacement. Yeah, yeah. Like breakfast, milk, and dinner. What I have for what I have for lunch? I didn't have lunch. I just have milk. Yeah. And what I'm not only satiated, I'm full, and I got a I got like the happy palate. Yeah. You know, because I tasted something good. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. I'll I'll go so ahead and agree. Milk. I I don't like the word satiated. You know. What does that mean? It means what you think it means. Okay. Like, yeah. Like, you're, like why don't? Well, no, I mean, what does it mean that you don't like the word satiated? Like, uh, it sounds kind of like weird. <laughs> <laughs> so although I wouldn't okay, use those man. terms, I will agree with you kind of. So I think recommended dessert. That's my recommendation. Boom. Check. There it is. Anyway, milk. That's it. How many? Uh, what flavors now? Well, you're always coming out with a new flavor. I think the darkness actually darkness dark chocolate. Is it dark chocolate? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good because you can kind of taste the extra chocolate. Also, warrior kid milks because your kid is getting fed uh, garbage that's trying they're trying the world is trying to make your kid weak yeah. and out of shape and you want your kid to be strong and powerful so you give them milk what do you give them for dessert milk what do you give them that's what you give them they don't want ice cream anymore they know your kid knows ice cream makes them weak they know yeah. that yeah. and if they don't know that they should you should tell them mm-hmm. so let them know that warrior kid milk it tastes delicious and yet it's good for you yeah so get some of that the so Halloween just recently was passed or came or mm-hmm. whatever. We just came finished away. Halloween. Right. right. So I contemplated just giving milk out instead of candy. Yeah. But then w- you got to mix it. You got to put yeah. it in little cups and all this uh, stuff. And then I don't really have any. Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave. Emailed me or he, we were we were talking and he says, my goal next year is that you have milk, kid, warrior kid milk in packets that we can give out for halloween he said it's just there's the only that's the only way it should be yeah actually that makes sense yeah that's the only way it should be you know how you like little kids should be on the milk train everywhere i agree you say that you think that you know how there's like right now you can flip on the news and you can see like obesity in america if everyone just gets on the milk train will it just be like america is now yoked yoked. (laughs) (laughs) the children of america are now yoked what happened they're tracing it back to a strange podcast that talked about a a a formula that they called milk and the children they started to drink it and now the children of america are yoked yeah the propaganda what? did it. Well, actually, that's good because you say like, oh, yeah, that the industry 
uh, is making your kids weak or whatever, is trying to make your kids weak. Yes. But here's the thing. That is true. Yeah, no. Here's what they're no, doing. No, they advertise. They make little cartoony advertisements to eat this sugar. Bruh, yeah. It's, you know, as, as an informed or in my case, quasi-informed <laughs> adult, and you kind of you can kind of sit back and watch the commercials. Like I see what oh, they did yeah, there. Yeah, I wonder why yeah, they yeah. chose that yeah. commercial to, to oh, market yeah. their thing. You know, and a lot of their brothers question marks everywhere. These mm. these commercials nowadays. Anyway, yeah, when you get a like a Snickers bar, right, bruh, Snickers satisfies you. Like basically saying, hey, if you're hungry, eat this Snickers, man. Yeah. it's good. It's good. It might as well just be good for you because no. it has peanuts in it. Like, bro, there's like, there's chocolate and caramel and shit, you know, like yeah. these things are not good for you. But anyway, so they're like saying this, they're like, Hey, oh, yeah. this is satisfying you. This is, this is what you Fully. need when you're hungry. They're straight up making you weak straight up. That's like you, it's hard to argue even that that's their, here's intention. the deal though. We can't, we can't just blame, you can't blame the food, right? You can't, it's not allowed. I'm not blaming the food. You have to blame yourself. Now, yeah, yeah. at a certain age, your kids are eating what you put in the fridge. Yeah. If you put weakness in the fridge, they're going to eat weakness. If you put strength in the fridge, they're going to get strong. If you put milk in the fridge, they're going to get yoked. <laughs> yep. There you go. So Check. the choice is pretty obvious in my opinion. Also, stay on the path. While representing, get a shirt at Jocko's store. Jocko'sStore.com. That's where it is. So you get a shirt, discipline equals freedom. The shirt that Jocko always wears every single day of his life, mm. uh, his life, victory, MMA, and fitness, black one. Boom. A lot of cool stuff on, on there. In my opinion, represent the path. If you like something, get something. This hoodie's on there as well. Rash guards, more rash guards for uh, jujitsu or anything. Yeah. Or, or surfing. Leif Babin made a comment. Yeah. On Instagram. Sure. On the origin Instagram feed. Sure. They put a picture of Pete. Put a picture of me, Pete, and B Little in New York City. I saw that one. And Leif made some comment about my trucker's hat. Yeah. Something about like you know awesome. the nineties called and wants their hat back. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even realize. That's how yeah. just completely out of touch. In my mind, this wasn't even a topic. Yeah. Like my my hat was something from the nineties. That wasn't even. That thought never, never crossed my mind. Yeah. Well. Is that strange? Technically, Leif Babin is not correct. If he was doing what I think he might have been doing. I didn't see that comment, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nor did I talk to Leif about it mm -hmm. yet. So I don't know currently, mm -hmm. but this is my guess. He was referencing the fact that trucker hats were trucker hats and then they kind of went out they weren't really a style and then you know their whole retro phenomenon yeah. where it like a, brought a, them back a style emerges from some you know thing so when from the, the distant past sure okay. yeah so when the trucker hat came back as a style it was not in the 90s if i'm not mistaken it was like after 2000 okay i'm pretty sure i don't know because i only wore <laughs> truckers yeah see well no, yeah I, I i must say i think i had some flex fits along the way yeah flex fit well yeah good Maybe. news about both of those scenarios is we have trucker hats on jockostore.com and flex fit represent discipline equals freedom on your head in whatever way you want mm. retro 90s 80s 2000s 2018 whenever you like however you like you can get the defcore hat 
Yes, you can. Okay. That's the hat he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I was wearing the Defcore hat, which apparently is now a 90s hat. No, yeah, you know what I think? And I'm going to ask him to confirm, but I think he was just mad. You had the Defcore hat. Uh. He didn't. <laughs> just trying to find a, find a way to, to be pissed. Oh, he's, he's lashing out. By his own terminology, or with his own terminology, he was drinking the Haterade. Oh, yeah. did Leif Babin busted drinking the Haterade. Yeah. Anyway, Check. yeah, some cool stuff on there. Again, jockostory.com if you want to represent on the path. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all these podcast places. Wherever you listen to the podcast, go subscribe if you have not already. Also on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel. Yeah, we do. That's where the videos are posted. Sure. You can see Dave Hall, you can see Josh Hall, you can see what everyone looks like, you can see what Echo Charles looks like. You can comment about the size of Echo Charles's arms and about sure. how Echo Charles does not look like his voice. I like how he sounds, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. There's at least one person on every one of our videos that sure. says, Echo's looking jacked. <laughs> I think the only reason that Echo posts these videos is so that he can read through all those comments and see someone says, Echo looks jerked. Maybe. Look at that. Anyway. You're so guilty. Also, Warrior Kid Podcasts. Don't forget. Yes. Warrior Kid Podcasts. That is also uh, out there and should have some more of those rolling out. Um, let your kid listen to Warrior Kid Podcast. And if you need to ask questions for Uncle Jake, you can do it through my social media, and I will pass those questions on to Uncle Jake himself and get yep. the answers for you. Also, the Warrior Kid Soap from irishoaksranch.com. Actual Warrior Kid. Is it called Warrior Kid Soap or Jocko Soap? It's called remember, Jocko Soap. But from a Warrior Kid named Aiden. Yeah, from a Warrior Kid named Aiden. Yeah. yeah. I'm just calling it Warrior Kid. I just call it Warrior Kid Soap. Yeah. Well, Makes it kind sense. of is. Yeah, Because he's out there getting after I agree. it. agree. Um, 100% American made in a at a whole new level. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, IrishOaksRanch.com. Also, Psychological Warfare. That's the little album with tracks where I will tell you why you should or should not carry out something that you know you should or should not carry out. And we are working on the next Psychological Warfare album, and we'll let you know when it is out. So. You can get some of that. And if you have suggestions, recommendations, if you want to know how you should do something sure. or not do something. Yeah, ref- ref- refrain. Yeah, let let me know, and we'll see if it makes the cut. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. There's a lot of them out there, man. Because no some more. people are like, hey, can you, can you do a track about not putting croutons in your salad? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a specific no, one. No, because if it's that specific, even though that might be a little broader than you think, them maybe. croutons taste good, and we know yeah. they're not good for us. Yeah. But you're like, have you ever, like, you're like, ah, you know, it's just a few croutons, so it's no big deal. Yeah. Just a little bit of croutons. Yeah. But then you, if you were to assemble your croutons yeah. in a, on the plate, you probably got a slice of bread there. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true, huh? Yeah, then yep. you then you realize, oh, I'm 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 off the path. I didn't even admit it to myself. I told myself a little lie. Well. What about like, and then you got to go, but that's like one of those specific ones, like ketchup too. How much sugar is in ketchup? A lot. You know, people, yeah. they'll put ketchup. Oh yeah, I'm a ketchup Or even guy. when you, when you go through, um, you know, the burger place. Yeah. Grass fed, hopefully. Um, and you are like, Hey, do you want the meal? Oh, I need a psychological warfare for that. Man. No. Think about it. No meal slash no upsize. No upsize. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Cause they're like, you want supersize that? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, the supersized only comes with the meal, so because you can't uh, just supersize okay. a burger unless you had an I extra do that all pad. The time. Pat, I'm always patty. like, hey, well, I was, give me three patties on that thing. But there's nothing wrong with that. I'll do that too. Like if I didn't, if I'm fasting or didn't eat that much or whatever, and then I get it like a hard workout. How oh, much I'll do better? That. How much better does food take taste after you fasted for yeah. 24 hours, 48 hours, and 72 hours? I would say 25 to 35 percent better. How much better does it feel to eat? When you know that you've just earned it, <laughs> that feels better. Yeah, what percentage? Significant. Fifty percent. Just, just to get that feeling, it's worth fasting. Yeah. Just to feel how good it feels to be like, oh, I totally earned this. I yeah. didn't eat anything in forty-eight hours. I'm gonna just get this burger on right now. Yeah. And they're I'm like, not recommending you break the fast with the burger because that might not be smart, especially if you're having fries with it. No fries. That's the thing. You don't. Brad, it's weird. I've not eaten fries, and I like fries. Boy. Oh, really? Fries are good. You hold the line on the fries. I have been for the past like one year. I would say. Dang! Yep. I just had some fries. See, Brad. Well, yeah. some of, some of us are on the path, and you know, some of, some of us aren't. It's all good, Brad. You're the man. Have your fries, but if you're having weaknesses or moments of weakness for fries, that's another side. Maybe that should be. Maybe that should be an album. No, I'm just saying it's in the same category as the yeah. croutons. See what I'm saying? Oh, I'm yeah, not yeah. saying no, I'm not saying yes, I'm saying that's a specified category. Yeah, I don't know that there's any, like with croutons, you're like, oh, you know what, but I'm having a salad. There's a whole rationalization that takes True. place there. Fries, there's no rationalization. Yeah. You're just like, I'm straight up eating fries right yeah. now. You're right. You're that's just right. straight up yeah. wrong. You, yeah. Except yeah. for they taste good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, I, I respect the fact that you don't eat fries for one year. Good job. Yeah, if you weren't drinking Mountain Dews, <laughs> Cokes, yeah. I'd have more. But yeah. it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, first things or, or baby steps, right? One step at a time. I think Pete Roberts. Mm-hmm. He he's like, uh, he's an enabler. Okay, he's a food enabler. Oh, for okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I'll be good. with Pete. And Pete's just like. You know, he just get after it. Yeah, <laughs> he just yeah. gets after it, and I'm with him. And I'm like, well, you know what? He's the one that had. He's he's the one that inspired the whole cake scenario that went down when I was in Arizona. Uh, okay, I was yeah, just in New yeah. York with him, and it's like we. I'm like, look, I'm not eating cake. Mm-hmm. That's not happening. That's like a whole thing. It's just principle. <laughs> I'm not eating cake. Mm-hmm. So he orders like a Sunday. Oh, no, he orders this this crazy milkshake that had whipped cream. Yeah. F- quote for the table. Right, you ever have you got four in the yeah, table? Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. I'm like, and everyone's like, "Well, I'll have a little bit. I'll have a little bit." Next thing you know, it's just cake everywhere, yeah, fruits, yeah. ice cream. All right, well, hey, that's good. That's Pete Roberts, good enabler. Yeah. So now, because that probably like caught you, you know. And this is what this is what you no, know, it did. And it's like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, we're just here, haven't seen Pete. We're talking business, yeah. blah blah blah. Here's a shake, and this is what pissed me off because you get done with the shake, like we got yeah. this shake, and he was kind of like a table for the. You get done with it. And I said, I, I no kidding, would rather have drank a milk than that thing. Because, not just because it's better for you, because the milk actually tastes better than that thing. Yeah. It's too much, man. When was the last time you had like a regular like milkshake? Uh, I don't know, probably probably a month or two. Okay, so I had a, a regular milkshake yeah. and I was hungry too. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, this milkshake. 
and it was from Jack in the Box. Mm-hmm. It was Oreo cookie shake. Yeah. And oh, I like too Oreo much. Co- too much though. Exactly right. Yep. That, that's my point. Yep. So I, I drink some the first like two, three, four, five, six hits. You're like, oh, this is a good shake. And then you're like, well, I don't want to waste it. You know, so you kind of push yourself to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you finish it and you're like, man, I can't finish. This. Like it's not, it. you know, the what do you call it, diminishing returns, yeah. you know, after about halfway down. And I'm like, you're like, man, you don't even feel good. But try drink a milkshake. And I drink the big one, too. Yeah. The double, sometimes triple scoop in the big 30-ounce thing. Bro, you get halfway. You're like, more. You just want more. It's like, <laughs> it you power so through the whole thing. It's good. Yeah. So even the experience of it going down is yeah. better than a, than a, a sugary s- scenario. Yeah, See what I'm saying? Check. So milk all the way. Also... What I failed to mention last time, maybe the time before, is when we buy the when we get the books that we cover on mm-hmm. this podcast, mm-hmm. and when we sometimes have the privilege of having the actual author mm-hmm. in this room with us. I listed them on the website jockopodcast.com book section. Mm. Actually, you did say that actually last time. Oh, uh, but yeah, I got them listed right there. Boom! So you don't have to go searching or try to remember. Hey, what episode was this book, or what book was on that episode? I got it uh, listed right there. Boom! Click right through there. Take it to Amazon. One day. Boom! You got it. Got it. That's the way it works. Also, to vary up your workout, you need some rings. If you don't have rings for your home gym, a lot of people getting their home gym now. Mm. I see it online. Yeah. My neighbor. We went uh, trick-or-treating. So mm-hmm. I see his garage is open. Got a little scenario going on. Yeah. Just like, you know how people convert their whole garage. Yeah. Which I think is a bold yet good, it's a good move. It's in California, indicator. it's real easy to do that. Yeah. Mm, in other parts of the country, you need that garage for vehicles. Right. In California, not happening. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's really, that's kind of the point where it's it's kind of like, that's a, what do you call like a specific decision that you see someone made. They're like, what's more important? Housing my vehicles? Yeah. The family vehicles, by the way. Yeah. Or creating a gym. Yeah. In California, what I'm saying is in California, that's not a big sacrifice. Not as big, yeah. In Iowa, that's a big sacrifice. When that when that dude converts his gym, yeah. I mean his garage to a gym in Iowa, and it's like, hey, guess what? Yep. In February, yep. you're going to be sitting in a freezing car that's negative 20 degrees for at least 18 minutes every morning. Yeah. Yep. But you know what? I'm gonna get my I'm gonna get my workout in. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly yeah. right. So, when you're getting your rings, get them from Onnit. They have the best rings that I've seen. Uh, granted, uh, I don't have that much rings experience, <laughs> but the ones I got are dope. Um, get uh, kettlebells on there. To me, the artistic ones are the best. That's my opinion, and that's Jocko's opinion too. No, it's actually not. <laughs> or debatably, However, debatably, I do have an opinion that you should, if you need. To drink something other than milk, mm-hmm. or you you don't need milk at that time, you can drink Jocko White Tea. Jocko White Tea, you can get it in cans from Amazon Prime, so you have to pay shipping, mm-hmm. or you can get the tea bags, and they, it tastes delicious, and more important, most important, it Guarantees an 8,000 pound deadlift. So you should do that. Also got some books. We've got Way of the Warrior Kid and Mark's Mission. Uh, Appreciate everybody getting those and giving them to kids. I get awesome feedback from around the world. Kids getting on the path. If you read this book and you will say to yourself, I guarantee you'll say to yourself, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. Yes. 
Every single person that reads that book goes, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. You should just have a little preconceived idea that when you get done with it, you're gonna say, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. So what you can do, like we just talked about with Dave Hall and Josh Hall, what you can do, you wanna help out a kid? Go on Amazon, go to your local bookseller and get that book and give it to a kid. Bring it to their classroom, whatever. It's gonna help kids out and it's gonna help kids out a lot. Speaking of giving, if you want to give the gift of discipline to someone that you know, get them the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. I wrote it, but you know what? I wrote it, and I read it. Why? Because I need to stay on the path myself. If I would have had the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual sitting next to me, if it was me, Pete Roberts, and the Discipline Equals (laughs) Freedom Field Manual, I might not have gotten some of that shake right there that he put in front of me. I've been like, no, that's a lie. That that whole that you just brought a you just brought a glass of lies to this yeah. table. Well, that's good because you didn't know Pete was like that. We should have known because remember when when we were oh, over I know, there, he admits like, it. Yeah, like he, he he's knows giving it. us like this baklava and all this yeah. like delicious stuff, and the, so we should have known. But I think it kind of crept up on you. Like yeah. if you would have known, like no, going into the scenario, you'd be like, "Oh, I'm on the lookout for your thing." Yeah. You could have dodged it, <laughs> but. I don't know. Yeah, and Pete, you know, Pete's like a oh, sick athlete. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, he played football and he could basketball and set all kinds of le- records in lacrosse. So he's just like an athletic guy. Yeah, and he probably, you know, when it was in high school, just eating everything in sight because he's big. Yeah, and yeah. he's trying to be yoked, so he's sure. just eating everything. And now he's whatever he is, thirty whatever years old, and he's just got that menu in his hand like a criminal. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Good yeah, times. So out. if you're hanging around Pete Roberts or yeah. someone else that's an enabler that makes you yeah. feel like it's okay, that's going to bring you down the, the, the sorrow, the path of sorrow. <laughs> What's the swamps? Slippery slope. Oh, the, the, yeah, the, the swamps of sadness. The swamps of sadness, yeah. the slippery slope of, of horror. If you're around that yeah. person... If you got the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Man, you can kind of like deflect yep. their weakness yep, with it. Refer real quick. I was just know? out there naked, <laughs> naked and afraid. <laughs> just getting yep. pizza ordering up Sundays and uh, tiramisu. It's, so I just spent two two days with Pete. No, three days with Pete. No, three nights with Pete, I should say. Was it three? Or was it two? Anyways, every night there's a, a dessert scenario. Next time, I've got to bring the, the the field manual with me just to deflect. Yeah, yeah, man. Actually, the more I he's think friendly about that, too. Yeah, that's he's what I was gonna friendly. say, bro. Because he's it's not like he's some no. jerk guy out of shape, no. doesn't no capability, he, he's and he's friendly. like, hey, eat yeah, this. no, that's easy to be like, bro. I don't want to be like you. He's luring you in. He's yeah. luring you in with like the smiles, and we're having a good time, and everything's fun. And he's like, you know, well, let's just. Would you? Do you want dessert? Yeah. No one asks me that. Pete yeah. Roberts the only person in the world that goes, are you, are you going to get some dessert? No one asks me that. People yeah. don't say, hey, Jocko, you, you want to see the dessert menu? They don't ask me that. Yeah. Pete Roberts is like, hey, I, hey, waiter, can we get the dessert menu over here for this guy right here? <laughs> He's just enabling. So you don't have any training dealing with that kind of scenario. That's right. You know what I need? Psychological warfare. I'm going to make a, an album for Pete Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-Pete <laughs> exactly, Roberts. Yeah. And it's, you know where he gets it from? His mom is cooking baklava. Yeah. His wife... She she puts candy out in front of him. She just gets after it. Yeah, he'll tell me. He'll send me a picture of like a, a bucket full of <laughs> a bucket full of Snickers. It'd be like, hey, I'm on the path right now. This is what my wife does to me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. there's a whole 
a whole a whole uh, uh, situation unfolded <laughs> up there. Yeah, so, yeah you got to watch out for this. The Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual that is going to help you in those situations. And if you need the audio tracks, it's not on audible.com, whatever. It's on it's on Amazon Music, iTunes, Google Play. That's that. Extreme Ownership. That's the book about leadership I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. That is the lessons learned in combat and how you can utilize those same principles for combat leadership. You can use them in your business and in your life. And then the follow-on to that book is called The Dichotomy of Leadership. It will teach you the hardest part of leadership, which is learning how to balance between the dichotomies that are pulling you in opposite directions. This is the biggest problem we see. We work with leaders all the time, and this is the biggest problem that we see with leaders. They don't know how to balance the dichotomy of leadership. So if you are a leader and you things aren't going the way you want them to go, the likely reason that that's happening is because you're out of balance. If you want to learn that balance, that will make you a much more effective leader. You want to find an ineffective leader? You go talk to a leader and you find one that's that's imbalanced, that's too far in one direction or the other, derails them, derails the team. You want to get back on track, get the dichotomy of leadership. Also, Mikey and the Dragons. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, speaking of extreme ownership, guess guess what I didn't do? I didn't order enough books. No, I didn't order enough books. Uh, let me let me let me go ahead and expand on that. I didn't order enough books of Mike and the Dragons at all. I didn't, what, like I didn't at close. all. I as you pointed out last time, yeah. oh oh I used to give my publisher a hassle and say they didn't get it. You're so conservative. Guess what? Guess who else didn't get it, apparently? Well me. Yeah, well, then again, look, I don't blame you. It, it I, I, we just found out that it's just not that easy to predict. You know, this, no, actually, you know? I will not make this mistake again. Yeah. Okay, so there it is. What did I do? Did I say, well, it's because the printer's slow or, well, we're not sure? No, you know what? My fault. Here's what I'm doing. We're running. We're doing, I've done, I've done, initiated two more runs. We're printing a bunch of books. Um, this is the good news. The good news is, well, okay, the bad news is it's going to take a little bit of time. And depending on when you ordered, there might be a little hesitation. The good news is these are still, I'm running the exact same, I'm running the first edition. This is it. We're just running first edition. I'm going to run it for a while. So if you still want that first edition, order now. And let me tell you what, order now. Order now. Why? Because if everyone orders right now and it's a bigger number than what I predicted, which it could possibly be, I need to know that as soon as possible. So... If you want to get the book Mikey and the Dragons, please order it ASAP. And we're gonna. My goal is that everybody has it as soon as possible. Definitely want to get it to everyone by Christmas because I know everyone wants to get this book for their kids for Christmas. Yes. Book review. Echo Charles. Excellent. Because yeah, so I'm gonna mention this before. That's like okay. It's a good one. Sure. We're we're gonna get over our fears, which is good. It's real effective, by the way, of that. Meaning that, the theme, meaning that the theme of the book, Mikey and the Dragons, is how to overcome your fears. Yeah, that's okay. like the theme. But I'll tell you this, the book is a fun book. It's like fun. <laughs> it's like because it, it rhymes and like all this stuff or whatever. And, and you know, part of this is me. Because, okay, so I'm reading Way the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission, the second time mm-hmm. around. Right, second time around, you read it before, you know all the words. So I start getting into it. 
turn on the theatrics <laughs> with the kids, right? They like that, whatever. So you read this Mikey and the Dragons one. Ooh, oh, now you got that. some rhymes in there. And it's like you with uh, Mark's mission, I'm reading like a chapter, maybe two chapters a night. That's mm-hmm. kind of it. That's a routine before bed. This one, you read the whole thing yep. straight up. Plus, they don't want you to stop anyway because no. it's like one, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, I turn on the theatrics with the rhyming and stuff. Yeah, outstanding. Fun, super fun to do. Like as, as far as an activity like with your kids reading to them, you know. There's something added there with all the rhyming and stuff. John Bozak, who drew the art, and he didn't have a copy yet. And I, when I was in New York, I saw him. I brought a copy for him, and he's got a good. I don't know what I don't know what the term for this laugh is, but he's got this laugh that he does almost like a victory laugh. I don't even know if that's a thing. Yeah, like yeah. He, he does no, like a, a laugh where he's so happy. Mm. That he can't really contain it. Mm. So I give him the book. It's still in the plastic. These mm. books are individually wrapped in plastic shrink wrap. <laughs> and so I give it to him. He like slowly opens it up because you can still you can see through the shrink wrap. Mm. But he's doing this laugh. This uh, I can try and imitate it. He's like, and then he's going through each individual page because the coloring is beautiful. Yeah, he great. said that. He said that years ago, he said five years ago, it wouldn't be possible to do what we did in terms of matching the color oh, yeah. that he originally drew, mm. the the color that he actually used, getting it to match perfectly with the book. He said that is not possible five years ago. It, well, it's not possible that we did it that fast because mm. we did it. It came out the, exactly the color it's supposed to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Normally, if it was five years ago, you had to print one and go like, okay, make this, bring more indigo in or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I need yeah. more crimson or whatever. Yeah. And and we didn't have to do any of that. It's yeah. like, boom, it's been printed. Oh, guess what? It's completely correct. And the drawings are beautiful. They're mm. amazing. In fact, what we are going to do, and I talked to John about this, some of those pictures are so gorgeous, we're going to make posters yeah. that have these images on them makes sense yeah and th- th- that way kids can put them in the room yeah and that picture of the prince walking into the forest with i mean come on <laughs> who doesn't want that that is just <laughs> everything he's going to face the darkness he's confident he's moving forward he knows he's scared but he's still going forward you put that picture up on your kid's wall up on your wall that's yep. what I'm talking about. So I need yeah. to, that image. That image right there. Mm-hmm. That needs to be big, and we just need to get it out there. Yeah. So I agree. If you want Mikey and the Dragons, then please order it now, so that I know, so that I can get it to you as quickly as possible. And I apologize that it's going to take longer. That is my fault for underestimating how fired up you all would be in ordering that book. I apologize, and what I'm doing to correct it is ordering. Enough. It's kind of like the tea. Yep. When the tea came out, we didn't order enough tea, and so I ordered more, and then that still wasn't enough. Yeah. And then I, I said to Emily, I said, "We need to order enough tea that we never run out again." We haven't run out again yet. I'm not saying it'll never happen, but we're at least in a really good spot. So, yeah. same thing, Mikey and the Dragons. If you want it, order it. Echelon Front. That is my leadership consultancy, and what we do with that is. We solve problems through leadership. That's what we do. Whatever problem you're having with your team or your organization, it's a leadership problem. So it's me, it's Leif Babin, it's JP Donnell, it's Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, Mike Srelli, and Mike Baima. Go to Echelon 
Front.com for details. The Musters in 2019, they are coming. One's going to be in Chicago. One's going to be in Denver. It's going to be spring in Chicago. It's going to be fall in Denver. Every other muster has sold out. I had friends, friends contact me and say, hey, uh, just figured out we're going to come to the muster. You know, um, I just got four people and I just, you know, let me know when I should arrive. And I'm like, it's sold out. And they're like, huh, yeah. And I go, no, like you can't come. There's, there's, it's done. You, there's no more place to go in. You cannot come. And so if you're saying that to people, you know, that's problematic. So that means they sell out. This is going to sell out. And so keep an eye. We haven't locked down the dates yet, but extremeownership.com is what you can look and get it. EF Overwatch, if you're a business and you need experienced, trained leaders inside your organization that understand the principles of extreme ownership and combat leadership, if you're a business like that, go to efoverwatch.com. We have our peers, people we're connected to that are from special operations, that are from combat aviation, and we are bringing them into the civilian sector to help companies and businesses lead and win and if you want to keep discussing and talking about all these things with us we are available on on the interwebs on twitter on instagram and on yeah uh first of all dave hall He's off the grid. He's not. You're not going to yeah. connect with him on social media because he's in Hawaii cruising super hard. God yep. bless him. Yep. And Josh Hall, though. Josh Hall. Josh Hall surfboards on Instagram. Josh Hall surfboards on Facebook. Check out what he posts. Beautiful pictures of his boards. You can see what he's doing in the world. Traveling, surfing, shaping. Echo is at Echo Charles. And I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Dave Hall for his service to the country and for coming onto the podcast sharing his stories and his lessons from war and from life and to josh also thanks to him for coming on thanks for spreading that for spreading that aloha that aloha and that stoke wherever wherever he goes and keeping the roots of surfing uh planted deep that's awesome and it's much appreciated and it's great to see an American company like yours continue to grow and to the police to military to law enforcement firefighters paramedics EMTs correctional officers border patrol all you all all you all you first responders all you military personnel thanks for protecting our way of life here and abroad thanks for protecting us and our ability to do this podcast to do jujitsu to go out and surf and live our lives thank you all for your service and sacrifice and to everyone else that is listening no matter what it is that you choose to do no matter what that thing is whether you're going to go into the military whether you're going to start a business whether you're going to work for someone no matter what you're going to do put everything that you've got into it do it to the best of your ability whether you're assaulting a building on the battlefield or whether you're shaping a board in the shed whatever it is you decide to do 
pour your soul pour your soul in and get after it and until next time this is echo and jocko out